For the deep dive into Thor Ragnarok, 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 Ragnar self, we've uh, laid the table in an incredible way. We've let you know behind the scenes, behind the page, what was going on in 2017. We've listened to the people that matter and got their opinions. We've paid some bills. We paid homage to the very best people around. Talking Peter J, Mikey W, Brandon Schmigilski, Randall Schmidt, Zach Thomas, Bastabier, Supi, Sam, and Bindi. The world class wrecking crew, the top subscribers on patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel, where they get incredible bonus episodes, putting out three bonus shows every month now for those people. Um, get yourselves down there, buy me and Will a coffee, buy us a drink, put something on the table to say that you support this podcast. And now it's time for Will to take us away with that deep dive. Before I press play, Rob. Ragnarok or Ragnarok? Because every time you say it, I I just want to go. No, it's Ragnarok. But why is it Ragnarok? It isn't. It's that I am mildly dyslexic, and I grew up pronouncing it in my head, reading Thor stories as Ragnarok. Right. So now I now I hear other people say it out loud, and I go, Oh yeah, it is an O at the end, and I have to course correct, but I'm not quite right. A thing that I do as my ever so slightly dyslexic and it's really only with names is that if there's a name that i don't know how to pronounce and i'm reading it i never pronounce it i never need to in my head mm. i just go that word that's that that's <laughs> that, that character's name or yeah. that's the name of that so i skip over it but for years as a kid i was i was pronouncing it ragnarok in my head and now the movie comes out and everyone's saying ragnarok and i must admit i hate the way ragnarok sounds ragnarok it sounds, sounds like, more hardcore Ragnarok sounds a little posh, a little bit plums in the mouth, a little bit. I don't like it. Yeah, Lloyd Grossman. The thing is, the thing is, for a while I thought it was Ragnarok because you're usually right about things. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, who would live in a Ragnarok like this? That's what it sounds like to me. Yes, this new chicken pasta bake from Lloyd Grossman. <laughs> Look at my sauce as the twilight of the pasta bake. <laughs> oh God, that's a time gone by Mish. far long ago. Anyway, we're now pressing play. Is he dead? <laughs> <laughs> We're about is Lloyd to start Grossman the film. dead? Is Lloyd Grossman dead? Just Google is Lloyd Grossman dead. No okay, guys, I'm really sorry. Usually, if you we're... don't know who Lloyd Grossman is, he used to go sniffing around people's houses, and now he makes pasta sauce, and he might be dead. We're about to find out. He's se- Get ready. The he's... thrilling conclusion of he's... Lloyd Grossman trivia. He's 72 years old and still alive. And he's lost most him. of his hair. Good on him. Most Good of his hair. Hair. He's... Whose house is he in right now? His or someone else's? I don't know, Rob. Okay, I think okay. he's in his own, hopefully. Should we do a mo- Marvel movie? Yeah, yeah I think do we that. should do, do a Marvel movie, because we're not going to do a podcast about 90s TV personalities just yet. Two years after the Battle of Sokovia... Thor- well, I hate to do this. Yeah, you, you, haven't, you haven't pressed play. You haven't done it. I know, I know, I know, I know. So you might say we don't need to. We will get angry letters. You, you can't just start. You have why, to. why did the podcast start without you pressing play? This is an outrage. Four out of five stars. Uh, That's what will happen. <laughs> Let's press play. Mr. Catchphrase. Two years after the Battle of Sokovia, Thor is imprisoned by the fire demon Surtur, who reveals that Thor's father Odin is no longer on Asgard. 
Thor also reveals that he has had visions of Surtur destroying Asgard, to which Surtur explains that the realm will soon be destroyed during the prophesied Ragnarok, once Surtur unites his crown with the eternal flame that burns in Odin's vault. Thor summons Mjolnir and breaks three from his bonds and fights off wave after wave of Surtur's minions before taking on the fire demon himself. Swiftly vanquishing Surtur and taking his crown, believing he has prevented Ragnarok. Thor tries to summon the Bifrost Bridge to return to Asgard, but Scourge, the Asgardian warrior guarding the bridge in Heimdall's absence, is preoccupied. After dealing with more minions and a dragon, Scourge finally hears Thor's cry for help and warps the Thunder God away at the last moment. The uh, Marvel Studio logo disappearing into the smoke at the beginning was a real nice touch, I thought. I always love it when movies do that with the logo. Like, I, I, I strongly remember, um, I don't know if it's the first Batman or the second Batman Returns, mm. where the Warner Brothers logo fades to the Batman symbol and yeah. into the night sky. And that was apparently a real battle to get that to happen. Oh my god! There, there was. I think 20th Century Fox did a couple of um, interesting ones, like for the X, one of the X Men films. The the end of the theme, you know, comes with like like a quick bit of the X Men theme. And I think one of the what X- of the of the old of the old cartoon theme, not the old cartoon theme. You know, the oh, X Men right. film okay. theme, which not many people not remember. Re- not really. It no, like, it was a riff from that. But one uh, of the ones I can't remember if it was Alien Three or another Alien film, but. At the end of the 20th Century Fox theme, they have a sustained note which sounds like a horror film, like, and it, it had a great effect. Like, oh, this sounds like an alien oh, film. That's cool. Yeah, I loved that. In the first uh, few minutes, though, you can tell this film was written, directed, and by the same guy who did What We Do in the Shadows. There's that same kind of awkward humor. Uh, yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Also, uh, I know it was, what was it, 180 million? I'm wondering how much of that portion of the film's budget was spent just getting the rights to use the immigrant song by Led Zeppelin. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know if it would cost millions. Maybe no. I'm wrong. I think it was you know a few hundred thousand. But yeah, but you are aware like how notoriously difficult it is to get a Led Zeppelin song to play in a film. I, I don't think I am. No. Oh, it's, it's, I'm it's, not. It's, I'm not Mr. Hollywood. Oh, oh, well, Mr. Hollywood here is going to tell you, Daddy O. It's quite hard to get a Led Zeppelin song to play in a film. If uh, if you remember the film School of Rock with Jack Black, he had to basically beg them to use. Oh, I have heard that story. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a real thing. It's like Led Zeppelin and the Beatles, two real hard bands to get to play in anything, basically, because mm. they got they've they've got really good lawyers and music rights and contracts and stuff. Anyway, on, on away from music, uh, I really love Carl Urban. This opening scene did make me laugh a lot when he had two uh, M- M4 assault rifles just going, I call this one Des, any other Troy, because together they destroy. Uh, just It's a stupid joke, but the way he delivers it as a total straight, you know, proper hard man kind of he way. He is great, yeah. Yeah, great, great guy. But someone is, is he? Is he a great, great guy? He's a great, great guy. He played oh. Judge Dredd, for God's sake. Um, okay. That's in a, the worst Judge Dredd movie. How dare you? <laughs> but we've had this discussion before, and then it turns out you're actually quite right. Uh, yep. But it's not the worst Judge Dredd film. It's just not as good as it's just not as good as the Sylvester Stallone one. From, yeah, that makes it the worst one. <laughs> I know, but that's a nasty thing. That's a nasty way of saying it. Uh, 
Let's go on to people who are more big and impressive than Carl Urban. What can you tell us about Satur? Or Surtur? Surtur. Surtur, I think. Surtur. Not Surtur. That sounds like the T. No, he's a cat-sitter. Um, Surtur. <laughs> Surtur uh, is, is from, as, as we, we kind of illuminated in the behind-the-page section... He is from ancient uh, Norse myth and religion um, and appears quite early on in um, in the Thor comics, Journey into Mystery, 1963. That's how uh, old that character is in Marvel. A, a fire giant from Muspelheim, the land of the, the fire demons and one of the, um, the nine realms of Norse mythology. Sometimes when you talk about Asgard and the realm of it, you might actually be talking about all of it, which encompassed the nine realms, which is Midgard, and then the realm of Asgard, and then Muspelheim, and Svartalheim, and all these other places. Um, he first appears in uh, an early issue of Journey into Mystery, where it's claimed that he sits at the end of the world, waiting for the end of time, where he can finally slay gods and men. That is a great um, description. Yeah, right. Oh, I love that. Um, and that's again, is taken from the Tales of Asgard, Jack Kirby stuff that he's doing. So he's just kind of ad- drawing these stories about the, the different worlds around Asgard and the, the big characters of Norse myth. Um, his, we, we learned that the first encounter with, uh, with ruler, with ruler, with Odin, the ruler of Asgard, is told via flashback and kind of establishes that their ongoing adversarial relationship when Surtur is imprisoned by Odin inside the earth um, after forming an alliance with the trolls to try and destroy the world. Um, Surtur is depicted as immense, um, an elemental fire beast or demon whose power is of apocalyptic proportions. He stands over a thousand foot tall in uh, in height. He possesses Ooh. strength far beyond that of Thor. His scale of power is on an equal parallel with Odin, um, which is the top of the tree. Yeah, that's a real um, tough one. He carries with him the giant sword Twilight, which is also known as the Sword of Doom, um, which is made not of Uru metal like Thor's hammer, but of mm. Scabrite, Ooh. which can only be found in the, the mines of Surtur's realm, Muspelheim. It is a mystical sword capable of manipulating loads of like mystic energy and stuff. Um, it can shatter dimensional barriers. Dimensional barriers? If it wants to go from one dimension to another, he just swings his sword and shatters the barrier and steps through. Um, And it's able to reduce Odin's power as well, uh, which means that Surtur almost always has an advantage when he's battling um, Odin. The, uh, the, the, The soothsayer, the Asgardian seer, Vola, predicts that Loki will free Surtur um, and the other enemies of Asgard in the run-up to Ragnarok. Um, so he will be, and usually depicted as being imprisoned, but yeah. He, he goes on to become a recurring foe in Thor, the Thor comics. Um, I think the first time we see him battle Thor, he's freed from the... So we're, we're, we're introduced to him by a flashback. You know, we see that he led this... He tried to destroy Midgard and Asgard with these trolls, and he's imprisoned in the centre of the Earth, the centre of Midgard by... Um, 
by Odin. Mm. When we first get him in kind of like real time in the 60s, Loki does indeed free him as is prophesized. Um, and uh, he, he lets him go uh, and he intends to. Loki's trying to usurp Odin and take the throne and rule Asgard. Um, and so Surtur teams up with one of the storm giants, Skag, um, mm. and they together they invade Earth. Um, but they are defied by Odin and Thor and also Baldar, Baldar the Brave. Um, and Odin goes, this fight's going to be a bit tasty. And he teleports, <laughs> he stops time and teleports every single human to another dimension so they won't get hurt. Um, wow. And then there's this massive fight. Um, Surtur creates a blazing fireball. Um, and sends it to the north, the, the north, the North Pole to melt all the ice, ice caps and drown everyone. He sends um, it to the North Pole. <laughs> and as he sent this to happen, Fox News is going. Now it's just this is just natural. Um, <laughs> oh, so, <laughs> um, Thor manages to. He Thor takes Odin's sword and traps her to in a uh, an, an, on a meteorite of magnetic particles oh, in another wow. galaxy. Um, he returns time and time again, um, and whenever he does, it really is like an apocalyptic story. He is he is that's his, that's his threat. It's never like I want to rule Asgard. I I want to defeat Thor in combat and prove I'm better. Surtur is the end of all things. His, his his plan is to bring fire and destruction to all of the nine realms. He is driven to burn everything and everyone to death. He really, really wants Ragnarok to happen because he knows when that happens, he gets what he wants. He burns everything. He sounds impressive. Do you think they did him justice in this film? No. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of a plot device, isn't he, if anything? Yep. Yep. He gets a cameo. It's, 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 it's a cameo and Chekhov's gun. Yeah, yeah. He's, he is basically a Chekhov's gun. Back to the story, though. Upon returning to Asgard, Thor is concerned to see Odin lounging around while enemies of Asgard plot against the realm. After threatening Odin, Thor's father transforms back into Loki, who is deceiving everyone all this time. After further threats, Loki reveals the true location of Odin. Travelling to New York City, the two Asgardian brothers find the retirement home that Loki left Odin at has been demolished. The next second, a portal opens up beneath Loki, sending the god of mischief away and leaving a business card for the New York Sanctum Santorium. Those nice cameos here from Sam Neill and Matt Damon. Sam Neill's in some of my favourite movies uh, that I would just keep end up what they, they were, for as a period of time they were always on BBC One mm. late at night and I'd always end up watching them on like a yearly basis. Which movies and they, they were? Memoirs of an Invisible Man, which is a really fun, mm. um, which is Chevy Chase as the Invisible Man. That's a John Carpenter movie. Yeah, yeah, I've film. seen it. It's, 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 yeah, it is a bit of fun. That film. it's really fun. Yeah, um, Into the Mouth of Madness. Oh, that's another which John is Carpenter disturbing. Film. It's great. Uh, it's a yeah. hidden treasure, that one. And, of course, you know the third one. Oh, yes. Say it for me. Jurassic Park. No! <laughs> Event <laughs> Horizon. <laughs> oh, very good choice, too. That's possibly Paul W.S. Anderson's only good film. <laughs> um, what What else? Has he, has he made one of the Aliens vs. Predator movies? 
I don't know, but he's done. definitely he did all the Resident Evil almost all the uh, Resident Evil films. There we go. I, yeah. I I do have a soft spot for some of the Resident Evil films, but Event Horizon. Oh, and there's always that big uh, bit where he's peeled all his skin off. Oh no! <laughs> but I'm talking about the whole thing of like, hey, there was much worse stuff that we filmed that got somehow set on fire yeah. somewhere in the reels, and it's like, yeah, it's a great film. It scared the hell out of me when I was a kid. Uh, a spaceship goes into space. It goes so far into space, the spaceship goes mad. <laughs> it goes to hell. It goes through a portal to hell. Yeah. Well, that's what it's that's, supposed to be. Or it's a, not dimensional chaos. I think it's more. For me, it's more Cthulhu esque, kind of like. Yeah. It's not like any Judeo Christian kind of hell. It's this space is just so vast. There's this horrifying thing there yeah well, that's actually great. that's even more terrifying than hell i like yeah. that it's just a thing bigger than us yeah as well as the uh, obviously use of led zeppelin here uh, i'm loving mark motherbow's synthy soundtrack but that's personal taste again because you know me love my synth you do you do I, i'm very proud without this anyway back to the film Arriving at the Sanctum Santorum, Doctor Strange greets Thor and tells the Thunder God that he's very concerned about the presence of Loki and that if Strange reveals the location of Odin to Thor, the Thunder God should promise to take Loki back to Asgard. Thor agrees to the arrangement and Strange opens a portal to Odin's current location, Norway, before summoning Loki back from his temporary imprisonment. I'm going to sound really stupid, uh, but nothing new. But I don't remember Doctor Strange wearing big yellow gloves. Not in the movies, no, but they are part of his traditional costume in the comics. Yeah, to me, they look like marigolds, and Thor's just interrupted <laughs> him during the washing up. <laughs> I, I loved seeing the gloves on. I was like, oh, wow, that, that looks. Now he's looking more and more like the real character. Yeah, I, I, I looked at that and went, yes, that, that one's for people like Rob. Uh, but for me, it just looks really <laughs> stupid. Um, I know people, uh, you know, some people are a bit torn about the uh, use of humour in this film, and I and I am a sucker for silly humour in these kind of films, and a lot made me giggle. But the line that really tickled me was, "I've been falling for thirty minutes." Yeah, I thought this scene was all fun. I what I, what I, I guess what I don't get about it is that it's so perfectly set up for Thor to be the straight man. Yeah, absolutely. Like Thor is the is the is the kind of the slightly oafish straight man with a good heart mm. the himbo with a heart of gold yeah that works. and then you you've got like you've got funny sarcastic quippy loki mm. and then you've got you know the the hulk stuff and it just seems uh, i don't know it just seems like that would have perhaps been the way to take the humor there, there but, would have been so many bits where he could instead of just making a quip or being silly or doing like oh oh sorry about that he could have just rolled his eyes a lot more be like bloody hell you know that kind of reacting to the situation just be the straight man yeah be the straight man that would have been great uh i totally get that i totally get your to your side of that now uh is there any history though between loki and doctor strange in the comics because i can imagine them two locking horns well he's only all horns really not really they, they never yeah. really had much of a connection until a the year this movie came out yeah. um that that it's it's almost like it, it, I, I didn't really. I would never put what Loki does and what Doctor Strange does in the same category as magic. Right? Would you say like uh, one's more dark chaos magic, the other's more? 
it's not that it's like like i don't i just never ever saw loki as being a loki's not a magician he's a deceiver he's not a warlock yeah. he's an he's an he's an asgardian god and he uses i guess it is magics but it's just a seems like a completely different class and different level yeah whereas dr strange is a normal mortal person who's you know done all this studying and all that kind of stuff but you know as time goes by and th- these movies put them right bang together and the comic books start to do that as well um so they don't really interact much in the comics but in 2017 there is a story in dr strange called loki sorceress supreme so in the comic books the position and role of sorcerer supreme is really important in the marvel universe Mm. in the movies it it kind of isn't because dr strange isn't the sorcerer supreme wong is Mm. in the comics dr strange has been a sorcerer supreme for pretty much his entire existence it me it makes him like the first and last line of defense and the top authority in the magic world yeah um it's such a coveted position we've seen dr strain uh, dr doom plot to try and take the role of sorcerer supreme um and and have that position in 2017 um there's a lot of stuff goes on in the end there's a mystical tournament to find the greatest magic wielder and loki is named the new sorcerer supreme by the vishanti the vishanti are the mystical beings that essentially are sponsored doctor strange and lend their powers to him in the in the earth world mm. um and they choose loki as their new sorcerer supreme their new patron yeah um and so loki strips strange of all his powers of the eye of agamotto the cloak of levitation takes his assistant from him and kicks him out of the sanctum sanctorum Mm. um and so strange is like out on the street with nothing and he ends up having to live like a humble life he has to become a vet because his hands are all shaking he can't be a surgeon Mm. um and he's lost his sorcerer supreme status but he does plot his return his return to power and his revenge dr strange goes on this quest through the nine realms and eventually ends up communing with yidrasil the world tree Mm. which is the source of all life in the nine realms and also acts as this infinite well of all asgardian magic Doctor Strange no longer needs the Vashanti because he becomes empowered by Yggdrasil. He ends up carrying this staff, a powerful staff made from the branches of the world tree. Mm. And Yggdrasil makes him far more powerful than the Sorcerer Supreme. Wow. And Doctor Strange returns to Earth, vastly overpowers Loki. He's able to now, like, do combat on, like, a dimensional level. Oh, that's cool. A massively more powerful Doctor Strange. So essentially what we see is that Loki pushes Doctor Strange so far that Strange like abandons a lot of he abandons all this obedience to the laws and rules of magic that he was taught. And he's like, if I keep playing the game this way, I'm playing with one hand tied behind my back. And so he ends up becoming a much, much more powerful version of himself. That does sound cool. Again, something I can't read because you won't let me. <laughs> it's not because I won't let you. It's the format of the show. Yeah, that's a lot of words for the same thing. <laughs> Do you want to end the show to read a comic? 
Mate, you're, I'm just saying you're really good at selling them. <laughs> <laughs> Staring off into the horizon on a cliff in Norway, an elderly Odin explains to his sons that he is dying. Not only that, but Ragnarok is already happening and there's nothing that can be done to prevent it. Odin reveals that he has previously imprisoned his daughter Hela and wrote her out of history after fearing that she had become too ambitious and powerful. So, this is the big question. Does Thor have a sister in the Marvel comics? Yes. Okay. But it's not Hela. Right. So, let's go to Image Comics. Nothing to do with Marvel. The first of our two trips outside of Marvel that end up being important. Um, (laughs) In the 90s, a group of very, very popular superstar artists were sick of the way they were being compensated by Marvel and DC Comics, not being paid enough money, not getting enough um, ownership rights and and royalties and all that. Hmm. And and yet they were the ones driving the sales of millions and millions of copies of comics of like X-Force issue 1, hmm. X-Men issue 1, Spider-Man issue 1, um, Guardians of the Galaxy and all this. So these guys simultaneously marched into both Marvel and DC offices, quit... And went to start their own comic book company called Image Comics. Ah, yes, I remember this. One day we're going to dig into all of this. It's an amazing story. In in 1993, Todd McFarlane, who was one of these guys, has created the smash hit success Spawn Mm. from Image Comics. About a a guy whose soul goes to hell, comes out of hell, becomes a hell spawn slash dark superhero character. In 1993, McFarlane, who is an artist more than he is a, and he isn't a writer really, um, he just starts to draw the comic, and he contracts a lot of um, great writers to come and write on Spawn. Alan Moore, Dave Sim, Frank Miller, and Neil Gaiman all come in to write um, different issues of the Spawn series. Uh, is Alan Moore's run or the issues he wrote worth checking out? He only did one issue. Yeah, okay. But you should look. There's something we'll talk about it off. off, off there's another thing he wrote for Rob Leefield, and it's a bit mad. Okay. Anyway, um, so while doing this, Neil Gaiman introduced three characters in the issue he wrote: um, Medieval Spawn, um, a character called Cogliostro, and a character called Angela. And all three of them were co-created by Tom McFarlane, designed by him. But you know, Neil Gaiman was the conceived of them Hmm. and they all all of them were so popular they become a massive part of spawn's history so angela first appears in issue nine of spawn as an adversary to spawn she is essentially an assassin from heaven a warrior angel Ah. sent to hunt down hell spawns which is what this the superhero spawn character is she proved to be hugely popular, becomes a major part of the Spawn comics, gets her own spin-off comic, action figures, merch, and even appears in the Spawn movie. Now, Todd McFarlane had broken away from Marvel Comics so that he could own the characters that he created, have better compensation and money, and said publicly and privately that he would honour that setup with the other writers who came to work on Spawn. They would be co-creators and co-owners of any characters that they created and introduced. 
And McFarlane then, <laughs> like, just just turned that around and essentially later claimed that Neil Gaiman's work had been work for hire. Uh, I own all of the characters oh, wow. entirely. Like, utter barefaced lies and buffoonery on a very public scale. Um, doing exactly the, to Gaiman what he'd left Marvel to avoid and going back on what he'd sold everybody. McFarlane also refused to pay Neil Gaiman for the volumes of Gaiman's work that McFarlane republished and kept in print through Spawn. Um, and this this was like a massive story in the comic book press in the 90s and early 2000s. Oh, I can a huge imagine. story. Um, we in, in 2002, Neil Gaiman filed a lawsuit against Todd McFarlane and won a sizable judgment against Todd and Image Comics for the rights due to that creator. When we did 1602 in our bonus episode, mm. you might remember we talked about how 1602 was an entire project. All the proceeds were going to fund Neil Gaiman's court case. And this was that <laughs> yeah. court case. Oh, this was the court case. This is the court case, oh, yeah. It, it all comes to... It's all connected. <laughs> it's all connected. All connected. So Angela, at that point, or Angela, whatever you want to pronounce it, was then equally co-owned by both men, as decreed by courts. And then further to that, 10 years later, 2012, Todd McFarlane and Neil Gaiman settled their dispute. Gaiman was given full ownership of Angela. In 2013, Neil Gaiman sold the rights to Angela to Marvel Comics. And she was introduced into the Marvel Universe. An utter mystery as to how and why this character from Image Comics from 10 years ago is now in the Marvel Universe. It's later revealed during the original Sin storyline, Thor learns a dark family secret when he's exposed to the secrets of Uatu, the Watcher, after Uatu is murdered. Um, It's revealed that Angela is the early daughter of Odin and one of his wives, Freyja, making her sister to Thor and, you know, adopted sister to Loki. She is apparently killed as an infant during Asgard's Asgard's war with another realm that we've never heard of before. We always hear of the nine realms. There was a tenth. The tenth realm called Heaven. H-E-V-E-N. Asgard went to war with the tenth realm Heaven and uh, during that his daughter Angela was apparently murdered and killed. This crime results in Odin severing the tenth realm from the world tree. Wow. I didn't know you could it, sever a realm. No. It is it is completely cut off from all of reality. It does not exist. It is eliminated from history. Nobody in Asgard knows of this. Um, and Angela is presumed dead, but instead she's alive and she's been trapped in the tenth realm, raised as one of the angels of heaven. Um, she breaks through this dimensional mm. barrier in a story. She briefly joins the Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, and then she fights Thor and Loki and eventually learns of her true origins. And all of this would have been an absolute banger in 1999. <laughs> <laughs> but it felt really limp yeah. in 2013 because the character hadn't been important or famous for 13 years. Um, but there we go. They lost their chance there. And I don't know this. I you, don't know this. You don't know this. 
for a fact. Right. But Neil Gaiman in 2013, when this deal was made, didn't go to work for Marvel, didn't do anything with Marvel. He just sold them the rights to this one character. I have a feeling that all the way back in the 2000s, 2002, 2003, when we did, when we looked at that 1602 storyline and talked mm. about how all the proceeds were going to Neil Gaiman's court case, we talked about how, isn't that wild and interesting that Marvel are helping to pay for this court case? I would bet, I would bet cash money there was a an agreement in place between Neil Gaiman and Marvel Comics back then. If I win, when I get the ownership rights, I will sell the rights to the most popular character, Angela, to Marvel. I would bet that happened. I don't know for a fact, but that sequence of events doesn't make much sense without that agreement in place. Okay, okay. I like your theories. As Odin passes on, Hela emerges behind the two Asgardian brothers from a portal and demands them to kneel before their queen. Without hesitation, Thor throws his hammer at his sister, but is shocked to see Hela grab Mjolnir in midair and destroy it in a blinding flash of light. Before Hela can get another blow in, Loki summons the Bifrost Bridge, warping both of them away, with Hela chasing after. Hela throws Loki out of the stream and fights with Thor before throwing him out somewhere into space. Arriving in Asgard, Hela kills the Warriors Three with Scourge surrendering himself to her. Possibly the fastest changeover of power I've ever seen in a film. Also, most intense family reunion. It's a hell of a way to introduce your new threat, isn't it? It is. It's it's a lot going on at once, and it's. I mean, even just seeing Molnir get destroyed—that's that's something else. It yeah. It you know that kind of thing. Anytime anything happens to Mjolnir in the comics, mm. it is kind of seen as this. Um, Mjolnir is like the ultimate deified artifact, the ultimate yeah. saintly object, the ultimate. You know, it's a it's a it's a symbol of absolute myth in the comic book. So anytime it's damaged or hurt or anything happens to it, it is this um, huge moment. Yeah. Yeah. So moving away from whether or not Thor has a sister, uh, let's move just move straight on to Hela. Let's. Uh, what can you tell us about Hela? in the Marvel Universe. Introduced in 1964, mm. the Asgardian goddess of death who serves as the ruler of hell, with one L, and uh, Niflheim. Um, she is based on the, the goddess. Um, the goddess in Norse mythology is called hell, whereas in the Marvel Universe, the, re- the realm is hell, the goddess is Hela. Mm. She is not Thor's sister... She is, in fact, his niece. Ooh, nice. Uh, Hela is the child of Loki. And um, that makes so much sense. And uh, Loki and the giant S Angraboda. Yeah. Angraboa, sorry. Um, and is the first of two of Loki's children that we'll meet. Every time we meet <laughs> another new character, I want you to guess... Is this Loki's other child? It's okay? that part That's of the, the show again where we guess... Is this Loki's child? <laughs> uh, Hel is born in uh, Jotunheim, the land of the giants. Mm-hmm. And when she comes of age, Odin appoints her as the goddess of death, giving her 
rulership over the dead in the realms of hell and Niflheim, but not Valhalla. Valhalla Ooh. is where heroes and warriors go live out their final days in glory and in feast. Mm. She has no dominion over Valhalla. She presides over like ordinary Asgardians and ordinary immortals and dwarves and all that kind of stuff in the nine realms. Those that aren't and don't belong to be in, uh, in, in, in Valhalla. She often tries to expand her power um, to the, the uh, to Valhalla and she often tries to kind of like take the souls of great heroes and warriors while they're alive and this is what would generally bring her into conflict with Odin and Thor. Um, she has a pact with death allowing her to claim the souls of any worshippers of the Asgardians um, and the Asgardians themselves and tell them to, to this, this other realm, Niflheim or Hell. Um, her touch is fatal to gods and mortals. Mm. She will take your life with a touch and she's capable of stealing mortal souls into Hell, although she generally doesn't really have any interest in mortals. Um, unless she finds them quite you know appealing, so superheroes are a bit of a bit of a they're up for grabs really because they're, yeah, they're, they're a high quality of mortal aren't they <laughs> yeah, he says yeah. he says very white supremacy they're spicy <laughs> a little spice, spice to it, little spice to it. Um, she can command all of the dead that dwell in her realm mm. which means she can raise them into great and terrifying armies yeah. um, she address, she has a great big horned helm in the comics same she, as her, the film is it you know when it becomes really big in the film? Yeah. With spindles or it's tendrils like, or whatever? like antlers almost. That's that's very much the Jack Kirby design. Oh, lovely. Um, I love that design. Yeah. And she's her, her, her colour scheme is green and black. And she wears a great mystical cloak at mm. all times. The cloak is very important. It keeps her young and healthy and powerful. If she ever loses it, and this has happened on occasion... Hella reverts to her true form. Her truth form is half dead and half decaying, reflecting that she has one foot in the land of the living and one foot in the land of the dead. Ah, uh, okay. And so without the cloak, she's incredibly weak. She can barely move because literally half of her is decaying away. Her powers are greatly reduced. So she needs that cloak to um, avoid the Stannis airlift. Um, <laughs> she's plotted numerous times to, uh, you know, against the throne of Asgard, um, whether Odin's seated on it or Baldar or Thor. Mm. Um, she has her own kind of interests and. Sometimes she wants to take the souls of the immortals who who are not dead yet. Sometimes she wants to destroy Thor, claim his soul. Sometimes she wants to rule Valhalla. So she's mostly seen as this deadly adversary to the, the heroes of Asgard. Yeah. But she's also a vital and necessary part of the Nine Realms. And is she performs a function. The, you, you you have to have someone who rules over and looks after and, and carries the dead. Mm. She's needed by Asgard. After um, Asgard and the Nine Realms in general go through some seismic changes, Hell is lost, um, and Hela now has nowhere to collect and take the souls of the dead with her. Mm. A great war is brewing on the horizon, and it's seen as a real horrific problem because the Asgardians would die in battle and have nowhere to go. Their souls would wander 
with no afterlife to yeah. claim them and there are things that would feast on the souls of the dead uh, terrifying creatures in Asgardian uh, legend called the Desir. Um and so Hela is urged to and does strike a deal with Mephisto to rent a lovely plot of land in his section of hell um, with which she can take the dead it's like a, mm. like a storage facility <laughs> it's like an industrial estate in the dimension of the damned yeah something like that <laughs> it, just a bunch it, of warehouses houses with fire behind them in quite a recent story um hella is bested in combat by thor's true sister angela angela we get the we get fake sister versus real sister um and angela becomes the new queen of hell and deposes hella hella flees to midgard where she finds and strikes a pact with thanos presenting to him as a queen of of death an aspect of the death that he worships and hella promises to bring thanos the death that he so craves and then they snog with full-on tongue and everything (laughs) (laughs) right in there proper teeth cleaning that was that was perfect delivery. It's like you started off dramatic, and then and then they snog with full on tongue and everything. <laughs> they do. I saw it. I told my mom. That's... I said, "Mom, that shouldn't be in a comic." And said, "Mom, that that they're in love. I don't like this." <laughs> oh, it's, it's almost like Vic and Bob. That was that was fantastic. Whew. Okay, mm. calm. I'm calm now. Emerging from the Bifos Bridge and into deep space. Thor crash lands on Sakaar, a garbage planet surrounded by wormholes. Shortly after coming to, a slave trader and his crew subdues the Thunder God. However, the next second, a scrapper lands and claims ownership of Thor before planting an obedience chip on his neck and taking him away. Rob, we've talked about Sakaar before quite a bit, but I think uh, we've talked about it before obviously, in our Planet Hulk episode. But could you remind uh, our listeners uh, what Sakaar is like in the comics? Well, it does have this vortex that sucks in uh, things from uh, out, out the rest of the universe and mm. deposits them um, onto Sakaar. Um, and the people of Sakaar do take this technology and adapt it into their own. But I wouldn't. It's not a garbage planet, and I, I think there's a lot less scavenging. It's it. it has we developed... prefer the term "recycling planet." Thank you very much. <laughs> the blue bin planet, as I like to call it. Planet, yes, yes. You can only see the blue bin planet once every two weeks. Oh, um, brilliant! Sometimes it's accompanied by its brother, the the brown bin planet. Um, <laughs> the Sakarians kind of have developed into this. It's almost like a, an ancient Roman civilization. Mm. Um, there's a there's a caste system. There are slaves and gladiators, and they use the technology from the crashed ships and things to support this and things. It's there's a it's it's a, it's, an, it's an incredibly harsh um, landscape. Very yeah. very hostile. There are beasts and monsters and and plagues and infestations by horrifying creatures known as the spikes and stuff it's really it's not a it's not a great place there's lots of desert as well um but yeah no i wouldn't it wouldn't say it was kind of i wouldn't although there is aspects of cyberpunk because they do scavenge scavenge tech yeah it's not like a, a dump garbage planet there's not like yeah 
It's much more like uh, it has an emperor, um, so, well, an empire. It's a king, actually. It's the Red King. Mm. But it has, like, um, yeah, an, an, a Roman kind of system to it, yeah. Yeah, because I can see um, why some people don't obviously don't like the changes of Sakaar, but I really dig the retro-futuristic vibe going on out of, you know, pure personal taste. I, I think the design's really cool, yeah. The design's really cool. Obviously, it can't be a replacement for the Sakaar, we saw in Planet Hulk because there's so much more about that storyline that that's just not being done here. But hey, if they're going to make these kind of changes, at least make them easy on the eyes. Am I right? Anyway, back to the story. Back on Asgard, Hela demands dominion over the realm and announces her plan to conquer all realms beyond Asgard. The armies of Asgard turn on their new queen, but all attempts to kill the goddess of death are met with swift destruction. On Sakaar, Thor awakens strapped to a chair and introduced to Sakaar through holograms, culminating in the announcement that he is now property of the Grand Master before suddenly being taken to meet his new owner. Thor watches in horror as the Grand Master cruelly kills another person strapped to another chair before the Thunder God is taken in restraints to the Grand Master's nightclub. Out of the corner of his eye, Thor spots Loki enjoying himself with the other patrons of the club. While Thor has been taken as a slave, Loki has managed to integrate, sorry, ingratiate himself within the Grand Master's social circle, but refuses to help his brother become free from his bonds. Realising that he has a potentially decent fighter in his hands, the Grand Master transfers Thor to the gladiator holding cells, where he meets Korg, a Cronin gladiator. Completely forgot that they used the song from Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory during the chair sort of Very cool, very cool. Nice little touch there, because it, it's, it's, it, as a vibe, it fits right in. Mm. But it's also a cheeky aside of, oh, it's like that bit from Willy Wonka. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Uh, I want to. I want to give a shout out to uh, Kate Blanchett. Uh, really, really carries herself well in this. I know we don't get to see uh, much of her, but when we do, oh god, she's just fantastic. I don't know. I don't. I didn't. I didn't. I. It didn't. It doesn't work for me. I like oh. Kate Blanchett in movies. I don't think it works. I don't. I don't. I don't think I'm getting anything from her in this. I don't know. You know, you know when you get a really good actor to play something like a cackling madman in a, in a role like this, and they bring something ec- a little bit extra to it. I, I yeah, I, that's what I was. That's what I was missing. You're right. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I, I felt maybe I don't know. I'm, I'm now starting to think that uh, 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 I was too distracted by how much I fancy her in this role. <laughs> Because yeah, she it is the it is the most attractive I've ever been to her. Yeah, yeah. It oh god. Also, the voice. Uh, I don't know what it is about her voice, but I did something twigged during something she was saying, and the, the, the I can sum it up uh, basically as evil Helen Mirren. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's her voice. Oh, did you spot who the voice of uh, Surtur is? Uh, oh, it's uh, Clancy. It is Clancy Brown. Clancy Brown, yeah, <clears throat> a prolific voice actor. I know their names. What's yeah. that from? Highlander. Oh, I was going to go with the, Mr. Krabs. The, the <laughs> bodies, the headless bodies of another man. Men have been seen in. He's playing the radio. Hey, I know their names. It's better to burn out. What a movie! 
sorry, we, what a film. We crossed Hanyaland to streams that. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and watch that because I remember it being very, very good. The second one, absolutely terrible. Also, speaking of people who are not absolutely terrible, Jeff Goldblum, absolute treasure. I, I very stupidly forgot he was in this film and I was like, oh, Jeff Goldblum's in this. Great. I'm happy. He's a lot of fun, right? He's so much fun, even though he's basically himself in every film. He's mm. never played a character. He's just himself in every film. Because like he, he was doing TV before this. He was doing Law and Order. Seriously? <laughs> he was like, yeah. He was He was like, he replaced uh, the Kingpin mm. in Law and Order mm. um, and took that role in Law and Order Criminal Intent and was doing that for years and then got more movie work. Yeah. And it was like, this was like his return to, oh, yeah, we can put Jeff Goldblum in fun little roles. Yeah, it's it's really weird seeing him now because he's quite he's 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 looking his age, but he looks so stylish and sleek with it. But he is mm. kind of turning into eccentric old man with a bit of style. And then you look at pictures of him back in his early days, and he's like, "Ooh, what a sexy man!" <laughs> uh, I have so much time for Jeff Goldblum. Absolutely love him. Uh, but let's move away from Jeff Goldblum and to the Grandmaster. He's playing. Is he a character from the Marvel comics, or was he created just for the movie? He is a character from the Marvel comics, so Will Preston. Hello. Oh, is the oh. Grandmaster Loki's child? I'm gonna say yes. I'm afraid you're wrong. No, I'm gonna say he's yes not to Loki's them all. kid. Uh, so the Grandmaster is in the comics, but he's not anything like this. Yeah. Okay. He because this is just a dude, like a like a guy, like a gangster and a con man. Yeah. The Grandmaster. Um, First introduced in 1969 in the Avengers. He's part of a small group known as the Elders of the Universe. He is the last survivor of one of the first races to evolve after the Big Bang. Hmm. One of the oldest... like Because death is sentimental, she wished to preserve an aspect of all of the first races hmm. of this universe. So she granted immortality to the last survivors of each race. And they have lived now for billions of years and have become something far beyond mortal. All of the elders, including the Grand Master, possess something called the Power Primordial, which mm. is this kind of residual energy left over from the Big Bang. And it uh, grants them all these incredible abilities, physical powers, genius-level intellects. They can manipulate energy and matter the grand master himself is seemingly able to raise people from the dead return them to life uh travel through time bring other people forward in time with him and back and stuff mm. incredibly powerful but the immortality of these people and their powers also seems to be related or linked to their hobbies <laughs> um okay like all old people this is my take the elders have grown really eccentric in their advanced <laughs> years and they each have a thing they obsess over and pursue with a single-minded devotion we looked at the collector who we met in guardians of the galaxy yes um and his he's an elder of the universe he's brother to the grandmaster um not real brother but they consider themselves family the the elders they do they do fit together quite well as people you can imagine them being in the, yeah. the same social circle and and the collector is obsessed with and single-mindedly pursues collecting rare stuff across the galaxy. Mm. Um, the Grand Master, as his name implies, plays games, cosmic games, mm. and he manipulates people all across the universe like they're 
chess pieces. When we first meet the Grandmaster in the end of the 60s, um, he is playing a great game against Kang the Conqueror. Um, Kang is lamenting the loss of his beloved um, Ravona, his, his, his love, his wife, uh, wishing he had the power over life and death to return her to life. And the Grand Master appears and is like, I can help you out with that. Um, I can give you the power over life and death. All you have to do is beat me in a game. Um, <laughs> the Grand Master's champions against Kang's champions. But if Kang loses, the Grand Master will destroy Kang and his planet, um, which is Earth in the future. Hmm. So um, they 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 both ha- prepare their 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 champions, which involves Kang kidnapping the Avengers to use as his pawns in the in this in this grand game, um, while the the Grandmaster creates a group of super powered beings to become his team, and uh, he creates a, a group he calls the Squadron Sinister. The Squadron Sinister are all allegories for DC Comics characters. Um, Hyperion is a super-powered Superman guy. Nighthawk is kind of this Batman guy. There's a character called the Wizard, who's uh, the Flash, very fast dude. And there is Doctor Spectrum, who has light-based powers like Green mm. Lantern. Um, so yeah, that's the very first time we see them and have this battle. And he keeps playing loads of games with the Defenders and and all sorts of other um, characters throughout the years. Big, big, big level. I'm not entirely sure. No, I mean, he, he presents adversarially, but I don't know if you'd call him an enemy. Um, he's just... He's just... He, he will mess your life up to win a game or he'll use you to fight for him he does have i mean he's 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 very self-centered and vastly powered mm. he does have a strict code of personal honor based okay. around the generally around the rules of the game um but when his brother the collector was uh killed and removed from the universe for the first time since the big bang the collector was actually quite distraught and he challenges death herself to a game for the chance to return the collector to life. There's a three-issue um, comic book series that Marvel put out called The Contest of Champions that is possibly the very first crossover event in Marvel history. Death picks her team of superheroes and supervillains, mm. and the Grand Masters are the same, and they battle for supremacy. It was originally meant to be a tie-in to the Olympics of the 80s. Oh, that would make perfect sense. But America pulled out because it was being held in a uh, a Middle East country they didn't get on with. Um, And so uh, Marvel had to quickly go, well, we can't do an Olympics-themed contest of champions. We'll have to make it a big old scrap. Big old um, scrap, yeah. And involve the Grandmaster. The Grandmaster um, beats death. No, no. Yes, the Grandmaster beats death. Beats death. Um, uh, But death reveals that in order for her to resurrect an elder of the universe, another elder must die. Mm. And so the Grandmaster willingly gives up his own life in order to honour the stakes of the game, Mm. uh, deliver on his prize and bring his brother back to life. And then as soon as the Collector is returned to life and the Grandmaster is snuffed out, Death challenges the collector to a game for the life of the Grand Master. So it ends quite nicely. So he's a quite interesting character. That's that's really good. 
Yeah, but very, 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 very different to this gangster con man. Also, I think I deserve praise for not giggling at the wizard, but I believe we've giggled I'm amazed, at that name before. Yeah, I'm, I'm amazed that happened. Yeah, yeah, he's come up before. I'm amazed that didn't happen. Well yeah, I, I was like the wizard. I went, eh, I would laugh, but I've laughed at it before. You know, when you're not laughing as much at the second time you hear something, it's like some yeah. things get funnier as you hear it. And I was like, yeah, wizard. I swear I've laughed at that before. I have no laugh left for it. Anyway, <laughs> back to the film. In Asgard, Hela unveils the hidden history of Odin's conquest of Asgard and within Odin's vault finds the eternal flame which she uses to resurrect the ancient dead who once fought with her, including her giant wolf Fenris. Back in the gladiator cells in Sakaar, Loki unsuccessfully tries to convince Thor to join him alongside the Grand Master instead of going back to Asgard to face Hela. While Thor and Korg are preparing their weapons for the upcoming fight, Korg notices and points out that the scrapper who captured Thor is an Asgardian as well. While the scrapper is dismissive to Thor trying to tell her about Asgard's impending doom, he notices the tattoo on her wrists signifies her as a Valkyrie, one of the legendary force of female warriors who were killed fighting Hela aeons ago. Before being led into the arena, Thor accuses her of being a traitor or a coward for not defending Asgard during a time of crisis. Another great uh, actor here, Tessa Thompson, fantastic. Really loved her in Sorry to Bother You and Annihilation. Yeah, and another one that I had a massive crush on at the end of this uh, this movie. Oh, she's she's, um, she's there's a gorgeous. lot in this movie. Yeah, she's she's great. Whenever uh, whenever I see her, and uh, um, I think I read somewhere that to prepare for this role, I think she uh, was inspired by Sarah Connor from Terminator 2. Oh, cool. Which I totally get. I totally get the, the, the whole, like, there's rage there, but there's also some drinking and self-doubt. You know, there's... There's, there's some... a Jessica Jones vibe to her as well, really. Yeah, I'll go with that too. And also, we have Korg. Lovely old Korg. We spoke about him before the Planet Hulk episode, but let's uh, let's revisit him. Let's have a quick uh, chat about Is him. he the child of Loki? I mean, I'm going to say no, because that would just be weird. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, I'm afraid he's not a silly Kiwi man he's full, of, si- full of goofiness. He's um, He's a member of these race of rock creatures um, called the Cronins, and he's a slave and gladiator that mm. Hulk meets on Sakaar. When the all the gladiators are telling their stories of who they are to each other, mm. Korg tells Hulk and the others his story, and it's a story that Marvel fans should know all too well mm. um a story that we've we've encountered on the past in the past on this podcast a story that goes back all the way to 1962 and the very first thor story ever in that story thor does battle with a race of alien rock people in flying saucers trying to invade the earth and korg was one of those people they only made one appearance and then they were brought back in Planet uh, Planet Hulk, um, which is a very cool little uh, little nod and, and thing to mm. do to tie history in. After being defeated by a living god, the stone men flee Earth um, and in their flying saucer and end up getting sucked into this wormhole where they deposited on Sakaar. Um, Sakaar. I just love that name. Sakaar. Sakaar. Uh, the, the, the gladiators, along with, with Hulk and Korg and the others... 
they you know they they spill so much blood together they come together as a team and a family bonded mm. by the the blood they've spilled and they become war bound which is the sacred bond it's the mm. first family hulk has ever had and Korg is like the most noble and honorable of the war bound he becomes hulk's most reliable brother um joins him on his quest to like kill the red king free the slaves and then joins him later as he turns back to those who attacked him for world war hulk against the avengers and the x-men and everyone else and indeed we cover that part of the story on our patreon bonus episode we do indeed yeah and there's an announcement at the end of this episode great <laughs> at back to the film at the arena the Grandmaster announces Thor out to a booing crowd before pitting the Thunder God against the current arena champion. As Thor readies himself for a deadly battle, his opponent crashes through the gate in awe of the entire arena. It's none other than Hulk, and Thor couldn't be happier than facing up against his old comrade. As Thor tries to reminisce with Hulk, specifically Banner, it becomes clear that the green monster he sees before him isn't the same Hulk he used to know. Hulk immediately launches into a flurry of attacks, forcing Thor to fight back. Isn't that like the funniest line in the movie? You know, he's a, he's a, I he's, know him from work. I know him, and apparently uh, someone's kid suggested. Uh, no, a kid suggested that line. It was very, very good. I read that somewhere. It, it, I think it's a fantastic line. It sold me in the trailer. I was like, that's great. Because it's that kind of taking these great people, this a, a thunder god and a massive beast, and like yeah. reducing it down to we 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 usually stand by the water cooler. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we work in the same branch of Tesco's. Anyway, in the comics, uh, does Hulk, Hulk does fight for Thor in the arena on Sakaar? Right, was that did happen? Didn't it? No. Oh, it didn't I? Okay, it had a Mandela effect. Do you remember the planet Hulk? animated movie we looked at do you know who he fights in that yes he fights beta ray bill yeah yeah and that also is not how it happens in the comics so yeah. this story has been adapted twice well, and both times it's not been the right the right the right gladiator that he faces see what happened there is because i remember it's beta ray bill and it's like oh it would have made more sense if thor was yeah 100 yeah. percent. but it's not um, the actual original comic anyway. no in the original comics it's the silver surfer Herald of Galactus and one of the most powerful in the galaxy and it's an amazing shock reveal moment Mm. in the comics because we've been having this like very insular story Mm. on this alien world full of characters that no like original characters none of them are like we actually find out they all all the warbound are from an existing race in the Marvel universe but they're Mm. not like character characters that we know um, and then suddenly there's this shock reveal at the end of, of an issue um, where the gladiator he's going to face is the Silver Savage, as the Red King calls him. Oh, and it's like, very oh nice. man. And he's got a slave disc on him, so they have to have this big fight. Um, yeah, it's very, very cool. And um, Hulk calls in his warbound to help him in the fight. Um, they, they ha- there's this thing that they have, to, they have to fight off. They have to gain three victories in the arena. And this mm. is their third, and so it's set up so it cannot win. 
Um, the 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 the, the Warbound are going to get their freedom if they beat the final challenge, but it's the Silver Surfer who's immensely powerful. They get the Slave Disc off him, and he's um, he's like, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I was the Slave Disc guy." No, but Hulk has l- lost to rage because he's Hulk's persecution syndrome after what's happened to him in Planet yeah. Hulk. Yeah. is in high gear and he you know he's old friends and comrades with the silver surfer they were part of the defenders together so when he gets attacked by this guy who won't listen to him he thor doesn't accept any reason and even though the obedience disc is removed and the silver surfer is like i'm fine now hulk beats him unconscious and has to be like pulled off him um so yeah yeah the second adaptation of this of this scene that we've looked at and silver surfer has not appeared once amazing absolutely amazing Thor launches Hulk across the stadium, much to the confusion of the entire audience. Thor approaches Hulk and tries to calm him down, but Hulk responds by slamming Thor across the arena. Thor realises there's no point trying to reach Banner and starts smashing Hulk, but is quickly beaten down. As Hulk uh, rains blow after blow on the Thunder God, Thor remembers his namesake and summons lightning to gain the upper hand against Hulk. But before he can win, the Grandmaster uses Thor's obedience chip to stun Thor in his place, while Hulk performs a finishing smash. While I love Thor's reaction to seeing Hulk, Loki's pale look of death is priceless. (laughs) It It was like... It, it's like it's bringing back memories from the first Avengers film, and it's just like, oh, that's a very, very human reaction, isn't it? Puny God, pu- pu- oh God, I love that bit so. I, I, I'll be playing the, uh, I played the Lego Avengers game recently, where they do the first Avengers film, yeah. and the other some of the other company films, and there is the they do the Puny God bit, but in event, you know, in Lego form, and it just worked. I I love it. Also, when he goes, ha! Now you know how it feels. That's how it feels. Oh yes, that's very good. Yeah, <laughs> that's how it feels. Nice, lovely little callbacks there. We've said it before. I've asked you this before, Rob. Uh, when we did, when we did our uh, our uh, what was it? The, the Incredible the, Hulk Returns. The Incredible Hulk Returns episode. Who would win, Rob? Who would win? I'm going to ask again. Who would win, Rob, in a fight? Hulk or Thor? Well, what's your what's your take on it? I mean, well, I, I tend, think I, tend I guess it would be an MCU take, wouldn't it? From well, you? I, I don't know. There's the MCU take, but there's also um, looking at it, trying to look at it fairly logistically. Uh, Thor is a god, therefore outranks Hulk in terms of toughness. That's how Stanley intended it to be. Yeah, Stanley when he created Thor was creating, literally wanted to create, because he'd already done the Hulk, he wanted to create something more powerful and stronger and bigger. Mm. And that's why he went to a god. Um, and in fact, it is, as recent as 2018, Stanley was asked a question at Comic-Con, this question, and, and said, I'd have to say Thor, because as strong as Hulk is, he's still mortal. Thor is one of the Norse gods. That's, ex- that's ex- In my head, that's the rules. It's like... I would say... Hulk is no longer mortal. In fact, the most recent, um, the most recent Hulk series of the claim series by Al Ewing is um, no Donny Cates is um, immortal Hulk. Hulk has just changed so drastically over the years. Mm. 
He is a life force. He's a he's a he's a he's a being unlike anything else that we you come across. Uh, there's no way of killing the Hulk. I'm just 100 percent unable to kill it. So um, it's interesting. Then equally, Thor has been super powered and supercharged over the years. There are Thor gaining all the powers that Odin had uh, once Odin passes away, and King mm. Thor is very powerful. Um, John Cimino over at Hero Envy blog has done the hard work for us and tallied up every single hulk versus thor fight in marvel history fantastic i'm a big fan of empirical data and we, we do have the stats to give us a definitive answer we've talked we've discussed this before on the show but here we go the final tally 41 fights most of them a draw or no winner <laughs> typical thor has won two fights conclusively hulk has won three so the numbers, uh, the numbers don't lie. That's, Hulk would win in a fight and does most of the time. That's some decent data. Amazing. In Asgard, Hela promotes Scourge to Executioner, a position she once held under Odin. With Scourge by her side, Hela musters her armies to the Bifrost, but the sword required to travel is missing. So Hela orders her army to hunt down those that stand against her. Elsewhere, a group of Asgardians pursued by Hela's undead troops are rescued by Heimdall, who takes them to a hidden sanctuary where the rest of the Asgardians are seeking shelter. Has Hela ever tried to conquer Asgard in the original stories? She she never really has much interest in in, in conquering Asgard, ruling Asgard. Mm. But sometimes she does want to kill everyone and take their souls. Yeah, yeah. Um, quite early on, she worked with Loki. Well, early on in the seventies, she worked with Loki um, to try and begin Ragnarok. Mm. Um, Hela summons the spirit of Vola, the ancient soothsayer and seer, who who originally told Odin the Ragnarok prophecy and then mm. since passed on um and she summons vola's spirit to hear the prophecy once more and to go about all the steps that it would take to get to, to you know to get all the way down the line to creating ragnarok they start by killing baldar the brave which is how ragnarok's meant to start then they raise armies of monsters and creatures and attack asgard with the the, the armies of the dead and all this kind of stuff um and uh, the 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 midgard serpent is part of this, and the Midgard Serpent kills Thor. A massive step on the way to uh, to destroying everything. Killing Thor, big part of the prophecy. Oh, yeah. It looks, looks like Ragnarok is about to happen. But Odin has managed to uh, <laughs> trick Loki and Hela with a nifty bit of grand manipulation. He has essentially created a second Thor. Oh, What? He's deposed Thor as Thor, taken a mortal, given the mortal Thor's uh, strength and power, Mjolnir, um, and, and, and made him in, in everything, in kind of like name and essence and all of that, Thor. That's and just, that's who the Midgard Serpent kills. That's just Saddam Hussein's body double, but with extra steps. <laughs> Odin, grand manipulations, trying to avoid Ragnarok. Um, he doesn't, doesn't tell anyone about his plan, so Thor can't work out what's happened and why Odin has chosen this mortal to replace him and everything. But then, the, So the real Thor turns up and Hela realises they've been conned by... The, the the true grand master of chess, cosmic chess, really, which is Odin, and calls the whole thing off and flees. Amazing. 
On Sakaar, Thor is nursed after fight after the fight before ta- talking to Hulk about how he got there. During the Avengers encounter with Ultron, Hulk hijacked the Quinjet and flew it all the way to Sakaar. With a potential way out, Thor tries to convince Hulk that they need to fly to Asgard and then back to Earth. However, Hulk has absolutely no interest in leaving the planet. In le- I le- don't like the idea that you can fly a ship to Asgard. I, I hate I, it. No, I no, hate I, it. I don't like the idea that you can fly a Quinjet outside of Earth's atmosphere. Well, you can get rid of that with a line of dialogue, can't you, that goes... And these are also able to go into space. Jets don't work in But Asgard is a different realm. It should not be a place like Saturn that you can just go to. Yeah, because we discussed the difference between realms and multiverses and and universe and all that. And yeah, yeah, it's, you know, but he's optimistic. This is silly goose Thor. He's very optimistic. I think it might actually be. I might. It might actually be part of the part of how it all works in the MCU. I just mm. don't. I just don't like. I don't really. I'm not a big fan of that. Or maybe they're gonna. I don't know. Summon the Bifrost. I don't like the Bifrost being teleportation personally. But there we go. I like that we're angry at different logistical things. Yeah, that's right. At the, yeah. at, at, at the same level of anger, metaphysical anger, and you've got technical physical anger. I've just, I've just played Kerbal Space Program for many hundreds of hours, and I've tried to get a jet working in outer space. Doesn't work. You need air intake. Anyway, <laughs> however, Hulk has absolutely no interest in leaving a planet that worships him as a champion fighter, and his belligerent responses to Thor discourages him. With no one left to th- turn to, Thor communicates with Heimdall, who shows the Thunder God what is happening back home. It's pretty clear. That Asgard needs Thor back immediately. How does Hulk end up in Sakaar in the original comics, Rob? For, for the benefit of our listeners. The Illuminati is the answer. Yeah. Um, a, a gamma bomb causes the Hulk to kind of lose control even further, and he ends up attacking Las Vegas, causing huge amounts of destruction. Um, and that's when uh, this group of superheroes, the Illuminati, who work in the shadows to move and shape super superhuman kind of uh, history, they mm. decide the Hulk has become far too erratic and dangerous to go unchecked. Um, they um, they represent the Illuminati. Represent like something that is very special in the Marvel universe. Mm. Each each aspect of them. They consist of Namor, the Submariner. The King of Atlantis and the Seven Oceans. Mm. He represents like the anti-hero kind of mindset. We have Tony Stark, part of the Illuminati, representing the Avenger hero and, and the tech side of things. Um, we have Reed Richards, who's the leader of the Fantastic Four, who represents like a the, the science-based part of the superhuman community. Black Bolt, the King of the Inhumans. The Inhumans are a very important part of. Marvel history and the they mm. tie Earth to the the Kree and the other space races. Um, Stephen Strange, who represents you know the the mystic side of um, of uh, of the Marvel universe, and Xavier Charles Xavier, who represents the the mutant community, and that's the Illuminati. Um, and uh, yeah, Black Panther's not part of it. Um, mm. They gather, they get, they gather, and they invite Black Panther, and he says. My dudes, <laughs> my dudes. This is fascism. <laughs> this is a, a secret police and a secret government that you've set up 
to do things behind people's backs and make undemocratic decisions to do whatever you want. Um, this will end horribly. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. Um, so anyway, they um, they decide that the Hulk is too dangerous to uh, remain on Earth. Um, with the help of um, the Hulk's friend and psychiatrist, Doc Samson, they essentially trick Bruce Banner into an entering um, orbit to destroy a rogue satellite. And then they use a space shuttle to jettison the Hulk from the solar system. And uh, they intend for him to land on a peaceful planet that they've handpicked, um, where it's going to be full of vegetation and, um, and and life forms, animals, and things he can hunt and he can lots of space you know, to run around. Essentially, yeah, they, they they're putting down a dog. Yeah, <laughs> but the shuttle passes through that that wormhole and ends up on the most hostile planet you could imagine, Sakar. I'm just imagining Hulk running around a big field. <laughs> He'd be dead happy. He'd love it. Yeah, but then he just turned back into Banner and be like, "Oh, this is awful. I'm alone." Would he? Okay, is he is he far past it? Is he in terms of the gamma bomb? Why would he turn back into Bruce Banner? Because he's, he's happy. Because he's happy. Okay, we'll see how this plays out. There's something else we were going to talk about, and then I'll oh. I'll be able to answer your question. I like that because Rob like leads to something, and then I was like, "Oh, okay. I'd like to know more about that." But we've got to get on with this episode, and Rob's like, "Ha ha ha ha." <laughs> Look in my bag of tricks. Uh, okay. That evening, that evening, a despondent Thor argues with Hulk with both trading insults until they calm down and apologise. Thor asks a favour from the big green Avenger. The next day, Valkyrie comes into their room and Thor convinces her to hear him out. While initially dismissive, the moment Thor tells her that Odin is dead immediately gets Valkyrie's attention. However, Valkyrie already faced Hela once before, and it cost her everything. While she tells Thor this, the Thunder God steals the remote for his obedience chip and deactivates it, before jumping out the window to freedom. Running through the endless scrap piles of Sakaar, Thor finds the Quinjet and heads inside. After struggling to activate the Quinjet, Hulk smashes through the back and heads after Thor until Thor presses the buttons in a panic, accidentally playing an old message from Black Widow meant for Hulk, sending Hulk into a fit of emotional turmoil that turns him back into Banner, who has absolutely no memory of how he got here. The next moment, the Grandmaster issues an alert telling all the citizens of Sakaar to find Hulk and Thor. Strongest uh, strongest Avenger login bit made me giggle. <laughs> or the password. The password, the password, yeah. Uh, like, strongest Avenger. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's not, him. not to mention Banner reacting to being the Hulk for the last two years. That was fun. Mm, it's like, yeah. what have I... That was, that was like, oh my God. It's like, uh, part of me misremembered. And I thought about that bit in Father Ted where they had Henry Sellers, the TV show presenter, to do the quiz. And he's, he's not allowed to drink anything. Right. And, and he drinks some a little bit of sherry and then goes mad and talks about how the BBC sacked him. But then he doesn't remember anything the night before. But the bit I thought that was in this film was, do I taste raw meat or something? I thought that line was in this. <laughs> right, do, from Father Ted. It's a baffling sequence of sentences is what's just do, happened. Do, 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 don't stare at me while I do a <laughs> tangent. <laughs> don't don't do that. It makes Doctors me feel. Doctors one day will gather around your brain in a jar and they'll discuss it. That's the nicest thing <laughs> you've ever said. <laughs> so in the comics, has Banner ever been the Hulk for for this amount of time for such a long period of time? 
Well, he's Hulk for the entirety of Planet Hulk. Yeah. The explanation being... Well, there's no explanation given. The idea to begin with, or what, what Hulk says to begin with, is that Banner could never survive on Sakaar. Yeah. And then Hulk is the ruler and the emperor of the planet and is perfectly and 100% at home and at peace. The Silver Surfer offers to fly him off Sakaar before his war with the Red King. Um, to find somewhere better. And and Hulk mm. has this, this touching moment where Hulk says, like, back in the early days, I just saw you hovering above us all. You look like a, a you look like a shooting star. Aww. And I just wanted to grab you and have you take me somewhere where I wouldn't be hounded by all these people and Aww. a perfect place. And the Silver Surfer says, I'm so sorry. I can do that for you now. And Hulk says, you don't get it. I'm already there. I found it. It's here. Mm. Hulk is perfectly at home and at peace, and he is very happy in Sakaar and stays as Hulk the entire time. So he stays at, if he's happy, he stays as Hulk. There is no definitive answer, but it poses all sorts of questions about the dynamic of Hulk and Banner and the transformation and who is the real one. Does Bruce Banner become the Hulk? Or is the Hulk like the real personality part of this being? And he's had to hide for many, many years as Bruce Banner. Then the Gamma Bomb lets the real thing come out. Mm. When you're when you're at peace and happiest, if you're the Hulk, does that mean you're the Hulk? Yeah. And Banner is something you have to do back home to survive. <laughs> Ah, uh, I like this. Yeah. Very interesting, isn't it? That is very, um, very And then Hulk goes to war against Earth in World War Hulk with his armies, and he remains Hulk during that period as well. So that's a two-year period of time in real terms hmm. um, where, where he's Hulk the entire time. Lord knows how long that's actually meant to have been in the Marvel timeline. Um, and then there's the merged Hulk, which we talked about in one of our bonus episodes. Hmm. Um uh, about Hulk and the Maestro. Um, in the nineties, uh, there, there was this: the Hulk had become merged Hulk for years, um, and he was Big Green Hulk for for, the, for a lot of the nineteen nineties. That might not count though, because merged Hulk is not just Hulk. Mm. It's meant to be all of the Hulk's different aspects brought together into one seemingly fully healed personality. Mm. That is who Bruce Banner is meant to be if he was not unwell. So it's the intelligence and academia of Bruce Banner, Mm. the power and the emotion, kind of the emotional state of... of, Well, not the emotional state, but the emotion of the savage Green Hulk, Mm. the streetwise cunning and adaptability of Joe Fixit, the Grey Hulk. (laughs) I work for the mob. Um, All together in in one being. That being said... This has subsequently been retconned to not actually have been a merged Hulk at all, to have been another aspect of Bruce Banner's sick mind, uh, a personality that is a front, uh, a character he's playing, an attempt to be the Bruce Banner he wished he always was but isn't. I like that. I like that because it's all about 
going back, revisiting old superheroes and going, let's let's look at it from a psychiatrist's point of view. That's what 90s Hulk is all about. Oh. It's Pete, as we talked about in our in our 90s Hulk, Professor Hulk Maestro episode, yeah. um, Peter David comes in and, approach, and, and introduces the concept of psychiatry mm. and personalities and aspects and things to the Hulk and go, this character's been through tons of changes over the years. What if it's all one diseased mind? Um, that's all available <laughs> on, on patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. That's one of our best episodes. Yes, do. Please do check that out. Summoning Loki and Valkyrie to his chambers, the Grand Master orders the Asgardians to bring back Hulk and Thor, or they'll be executed. On their way out, Valkyrie and Loki start fighting, with Loki accessing Valkyrie's memories in the middle of the fight. Valkyrie suddenly relives her past, where she was the sole survivor in a futile battle against Hela. On the streets of Sakaar, Thor guides a jittery Banner through a market and tries to convince Banner to turn back into the Hulk so he can help them reclaim Asgard. But Banner says if he turns back into the Hulk, he may never return. The next moment, a parade celebrating the Hulk goes past and the two are separated. When they are reunited, they bump into Valkyrie. After convincing Valkyrie to join them on their quest to save Asgard, Valkyrie leads them back to her quarters where Loki is being held captive. So, Valkyrie, I take it she's a character from the original comics because she's really badass in this. I'm going to say sort of, but not really. But not in the fun way you usually say it. How do I normally say it? Sort of, but not really. Oh, yeah, I suppose, yeah. I it's a catchphrase. You've got to yeah. say it properly. Uh, now, I'm going to turn it back around on you and say, do you think Valkyrie is Loki's child? Oh, here we go. Yes. I'm afraid not, no. Uh, wrong again. Um <laughs> So th- this might be one where it's it- it- it's the character name only. Um, there is a famous Marvel character and superhero called Valkyrie, mm. popular character from the 1970s, um, but she shares very little with this MCU character. Um, and the character... <laughs> okay. Uh, so the character first turns up, Valkyrie, mm. powerful, blonde, Asgardian warrior. Yeah. First That's appears... First appears the Avengers in 1970 um, as the leader of a group called the Lady Liberators. Oh, um, the front cover features the Avengers beaten and defeated, the male Avengers beaten mm. and defeated, with Valkyrie standing with one foot on Giant Man's neck, like she's <laughs> conquered him completely. Nice. And her team of the Lady Liberators, involving the Wasp, the Black Widow, the Scarlet Witch, and Medusa of the Inhumans and the Fantastic Four. Mm. And Valkyrie, this brand new character on the front cover, is saying, All right, girls, that finishes off these male chauvinist pigs! <laughs> the group yeah. is uh, introduced and meant to be sort of a light-hearted satire mm. of what was perceived to be extreme feminism um it perceived to be extreme feminism in 1970 by old white men like stan lee and roy thomas yeah the so, feminazis have gone far enough um <laughs> the female members of the avengers are gathered for a secret meeting by a person calling herself valkyrie um they all gather together and valkyrie explains i was once a brilliant scientist who constantly suffered from sexism and dismissive attitudes of men and then one of my experiments granted me superhuman abilities. And now I wish to help the women of the Avengers address their sexism in their own lives. 
by confronting the male chauvinistic teammates who hold them down and and uh, demand to uh, confront them and yeah confront and demand that they all sort of like recognize how formidable and capable they are um and she puts points out all the different times the women have been overlooked and ignored and unfairly judged because of their gender and the all the females are like that sounds good yeah we do leave pretty horrible lives Um, (laughs) we'll join you and so they become the lady liberators and they get into a fight with the avengers and then it's revealed that the valkyrie is in fact a false identity of the asgardian villain the enchantress Oh, I remember from the Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Yeah, Amora the Enchantress. And she disguised herself as a kind of a false narrative story and then used magic spells to influence the, the minds of the of the female Avengers so they'd kind of do this thing. Um, after the battle is finished, uh, Clint Barton Hawkeye criticizes feminism in general, telling the women Avengers, you, <laughs> you birds finally learned your lesson about this women's lib bull. <laughs> Um, <laughs> causing the Scarlet Witch and the Wasp to immediately defend feminism and say, shut up, you. Um, anyway, writer Roy Thomas and others at Marvel really liked the design of this character, the look of the Valkyrie, um, and wanted to actually do something with the character, which was difficult because it wasn't a real character. It was like a, 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 a fake alter ego. So... They created something convoluted to bring her to life. They they basically uh, tell us all. We learned that uh, Brunhild the Valkyrie was a real Valkyrie, a real Asgardian Valkyrie. One of the if you don't know what a Valkyrie is, folks, a val- it's a Valkyrie. Uh, uh, oh. Do you, you right val- there? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, val- I'm I'm doing a whole thing. Oh, you, do you want to do folks. this bit? No, I was gonna. I thought that was my cue to guess. Nope. I was talking to the folks at home. I said, if you don't know what a Valkyrie is, I, didn't and I was about if. to... Yeah, cool. What did you think I was going to do then? Just not tell everyone what a Valkyrie is? No, just ask if I know what a Valkyrie is. Do you want, I... to, do you want to let everyone know that you're a big, brave boy with a big brain you know what a Valkyrie is? I don't want to anymore. <laughs> do you know what a Valkyrie is, Will? No, you, just, you just do your thing. <laughs> do you know what it is? Don't do this. This is humiliating. <laughs> Okay. Valkyries are a group of warrior goddesses in Marvel who appear over the battlefields of um, Norse or, or people that worship the Asgardians. And when they die in battle, the fallen are carried away to Valhalla, the land of the honored dead. That's what, um, exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> no, it was. I, I knew they, they, they take the people, the honored dead, to back for Valhalla. Um. Her soul, the soul of Brunhild, this particular Valkyrie, is stolen by the Enchantress so that she can assume her form and her powers at will and kind of do stuff with it. Mm. Um, so they go, okay, that's that's how we explain it was a real person and then a cover identity. And then through mystical shenanigans, the soul of Brunhild the Valkyrie ends up in a mortal woman called Barbara Norris. Um, and she gains the powers and the appearance and the personality of Brunhild the Valkyrie. Barbara Wallace. Norris. Barbara no- Norris, sorry. That sounds like a character from Coronation Street. Oh, I was so exactly thinking that. Because Norris is the name of the guy who used to run the uh, the news agents. I love Norris. Oh, great character. Um, so, yeah, her immortal soul is placed in Barbara's body, displacing Barbara's soul 
into her body, which is lost somewhere in Asgard. Um, anyway, as Valkyrie, she's a superhero. She worked with the Hulk, Doctor Strange, and the Silver Surfer as part of the Defenders. This movie contains loads of Defenders characters um, who uh, we never really kind of get much more of. Um, we might, we might, we might do. They were a bright, shining 1970s team that everyone really seemed to love. At one stage, they were more popular than the Avengers. Um, she'd eventually regain her own Asgardian body and then die and then come back and all sorts of like that. By the end of the 70s, like a lot of these 70s characters, these especially the Defenders, um, Valkyrie wasn't used a huge amount by Marvel Comics. Mm. Um, not much in the 80s, not at all really in the 90s. And then she started to kind of be introduced a little bit more uh, in the 2000s and 2010s going forward. Um, but yes, that's... so. Nothing I've described. I mean, aside from being a Valkyrie, there's nothing really. I don't think you can attach to this MCU one, is there? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. I get that. Right. Noticing that one of the wormholes surrounding Sakaar could be the one they need to get back home, Banner tells the rest of the group that they'll need a ship. Realizing how useful he could be, Loki tells the rest of the group that he can get access to one of the Grand Master ships. With an escape plan forming, Thor tells the group the next stage, incite a revolution. Bursting into the gladiator holding cells, Valkyrie deactivates their obedient chips and arms them. Meanwhile, the Grandmaster has caught wind of the revolution and prepares his men for armed insurrection. I'm, uh, uh, the- I'm so hungry, obedience chips sounds pretty good right about now. Obedience chips. Mm. <laughs> Do you want salt and vinegar on your obedience chips? Yes, please. <laughs> that yes please did sound very obedient as well oh, yes please I won't do anything wrong I just want some chips please thank you thank you very much in the in the Marvel comics does Thor ever lead a revolution on Sakaar no Thor doesn't I don't think ever goes to Sakaar it's no. Hulk that leads that that revolution it is isn't it yeah um, yeah. yeah he um, he starts off being very insular not wanting anything to do with anyone else's plight but then he is the, this war bound becomes his like real family and he starts to add more and more slaves and gladiators and and these kind of despondent people to it and it becomes this big big tribe and he essentially becomes like a Genghis Khan figure roaming yeah. through Sakaar like destroying anyone that's uh, naughty not that this was Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan was didn't destroy people that were naughty. He raped and pillaged. Um, but he becomes a real warlord, and he eventually kind of frees the slaves and goes into battle with the Red King and eventually kills the Red King. But yeah, but no, not not Thor. It's it's Hulk that does all that. Okay. Back into the gra- uh, bursting into the Grand Master's palace, Thor and Loki shoot their way through the defenses before reaching their escape ship. However, the moment they've reached the ship, Loki deceives Thor, hoping to get a reward for his capture. Luckily, Thor anticipated this and was able to stick an obedience chip on his brother, which he then uses to subdue Loki before leaving his brother helpless on the floor before flying the spaceship away. Not to be nitpicky here, but it was around this point of the film where I felt it was more obviously green screen than usual. Did you feel this? Um, I felt it in this movie definitely. I don't know that yeah. if it was that particular part. Yeah. Do, do you think it's the first time we start to see that to really notice it in in the Marvel movies? I 
I can't think... Okay, obviously there are some things we go, oh yeah, that was definitely green screen, but you don't know how much of it. There was there were bits in this film, so many, where it felt like I can definitely tell that in a room that's completely green screen. Like from, And it, one, one of the key things was the the uh, acoustics of them talking felt like... Oh, wow. A, yeah, I, I, I was listening back to the acoustics and went, no, that doesn't sound like they're in a glass elevator. That sounds like they're in a closed-off room. Mm-hmm. It's very odd. It, uh, it, it brought me out of the film for a bit. I, I find bit. myself very sensitive to, it's probably blue screen these days, but fake mm. backgrounds really, I, I find them deeply, um, they interrupt me in yeah. my enjoyment massively, yeah. Like if, if you've ever seen like a YouTube show or something, or something a YouTube video has uh, done where they actually have green screen, but it isn't as good as Hollywood, but it has that kind of not much is happening but you've got this amazing sort of look in the background, even though it's like a guy in his jeans and T-shirt. It had that kind of vibe in some places. I've seen Shang-Chi, the end of Shang-Chi. That was some of the most egregious green screen, blue screen I've ever seen. Oh, that was but, really ropey. Or it, it hit me, anyway. Oh, I, I, I don't remember feeling that bad, but this... Well, we'll, we'll talk about that on the rerun. But yeah, that was, it, was just, it just, felt, just felt a bit odd. Also, I was talking to someone... Um, about because I, I watched it, I think the night I watched it, I went to go to a concert with my friends, and we were talking about this bit in where Loki, uh, Thor says to Loki, "We'll do that. We'll do the get help, the get help trick." Oh yeah, and he comes and carrying Loki, going, "Help! My brother needs that. help." I don't want to do that. It just throws him at <laughs> really like, good. That's that's not a trick. That's just throwing someone at other people. <laughs> Loved it. Anyway, back to the film. As Thor flies through the city, the Grandmaster's ship, ships close in and fire upon him. Valkyrie flies in behind them to offer support, along with Banner, before ejecting Bruce onto Thor's ship. As Topaz, the Grandmaster's right-hand woman, destroys Valkyrie's ship, the Asgardian jumps at the last minute onto Thor's ship before jumping off to face the rest of the Grandmaster's fleet. Thor doesn't want her to have all the fun and tells Banner to fly their ship while the Asgardians fight. Trying to find a weapon system on on board the ship, Banner accidentally activates a music and fireworks display that causes Topaz to crash. The next moment, Thor and Valkyrie jump back on board in time for them to fly into the wormhole. Meanwhile, a group of revolters led by Korg comes across come across Loki and deactivate his obedience chip and invite him onto their spaceship, assuming he's one of them. It does feel a bit weird um, when you, there's that shot of Jeff Goldblum's giant hologram in the city yelling orders at everybody, but Jeff Goldblum is the least authoritative person I could imagine. He's like, guards, uh, go get them or something. Ah, you know. I think, yeah, that's, yeah. that's, the, that's the, the humor of the character, isn't it? I know it's the humor of the character, but it's like, it, it works because it's Jeff Goldblum. But then you're like thinking, oh, when has Jeff Goldblum ever been authoritative in a role like that? He's, he's never mm. screamed orders at people. He's usually good at criticizing. Um, so the Grand Master, the Grand Master, sorry, I don't know why I revert to that uh, the grandmaster bff here is topaz is she a character from the marvel comics first of all <laughs> yeah do you think she is she loki's oh, child well yeah i'm gonna go yes uh no so <laughs> <laughs> it's one of them it's one of them um this is really weird so mm. there is a marvel character called topaz Mm. Um, a young girl, a mystic witch, who originally appears uh, in Werewolf by Night, 
using her empathic powers to to keep our good friend Jack Russell from going off the leash. Mm. She becomes like this supporting <laughs> supporting cast member in Marvel magic books, like Doctor Strange. She helps fight against Dracula and Mephisto. But her whole thing is she is young, like a, a kid and a, and, a, and a witch. That doesn't mm. sound like this badass warrior woman general in the movie, does it? Yeah. So I, mean. I don't think that's her. The mm. only other comic book Topaz is published by another comic company, Malibu mm. Comics. Um, in the eighties, Malibu Comics came about and they published um, public domain stories about Tarzan and Sherlock Holmes, mm. and then they gained the licenses to do tie-in comic books for Planet of the Apes, Alien Nation, Robotech. You know, so they they had a presence. Um, on the comic book shelves, but they're not like a major player. And then late 80s, early 90s, we get this massive boom of superhero comics. Um, and Malibu cashes in and launches its own line of superhero comics called The Ultraverse. Mm. Um, a very cool time for comic books. Um, it features a, a bunch of, in their world, superheroes are called Ultras. Um, whole new universe. They, they superheroes. They have this like tight Marvel esque continuity because they know that's what people want. Um, their version of the Avengers was a team called Ultra Force. Um, Ultra Force <laughs> even had their own Saturday morning cartoon series. It was a major thing, um, and they had a line of action figures and toys. It burned out very quickly yeah. but it was there in the in the mid 90s ultra um, force um, sounds like something ross kemp stars in <laughs> ultra force yeah um uh one of the characters in this is an alien warrior called topaz strong incredible fighter from a world where women rule and men are subservient and she fights using armor and a powerful staff weapon which seems a lot more like the armoured staff-wielding warrior we see in this movie called Topaz. Um, and in 1994, Malibu were going bust and end up being bought out by Marvel Comics. So Marvel does own this Topaz character. <laughs> and it sounds much closer to the, the character in this movie, right? Yeah, yeah. But I don't know, because... Despite the popularity of Ultraverse, Marvel has never done anything with those characters outside of the mid-90s, and it looks like there's some legal reason they can't, or business reason. Yeah. Um, Joe Quesada uh, was was asked in 2005 about whether they're going to do anything with Ultraverse, and he said, let's just say I wanted to bring these characters back in a very big way, but the way the deal was initially structured, he's talking about Marvel buying mm. Malibu Comics, it's next to impossible to publish these comics and these characters. Um, he wow. says there's rumours out there that it has to do with a certain percentage of sales that has to be doled out to the original creative teams. Um, whilst this is a logistical nightmare because of the way the initial deal was structured, that's not the reason we have chosen not to go near these popular characters. There is a bigger one, but I really don't feel like it's my place to make that dirty laundry public. Oh... 2012 writer and former editor Steve Angelhart, big big Avengers writer, suggested in a podcast interview that the reason Marvel will not present and, and publish the Ultraverse characters is because 5% of the profits from those books would have to go to the original Malibu creators that are still alive. 
Uh, Marvel editor Tom Breverick denied the 5% rumour and said mm. that was not holding Marvel back, but then said he is unable to give a real explanation due to non-disclosure agreements. So it's a mystery. It's a real mystery. And that makes wow. me think that they wouldn't slash couldn't use this character in a movie. If there's this legal business situation that this hasn't been, you know, sought... If it had been resolved since 2012, when these last interviews were done, we'd know about it by now. The Ultraverse characters would be in comics. So, I don't know. Who is Topaz? It, so- it seems to me that she's much closer to the Ultraverse character than the Marvel mystic. It may just be that they've used the name and completely changed everything else. It it's be, hard to that. tell. Hard yeah. to tell. Wow, that's juicy. juicy. Anyway, juicy. Back on Asgard. <laughs> Stop it. Juicy, juicy. Ultra Force. <laughs> With Ross Kemp. <laughs> Back on Asgard. Hela demands that the citizens tell her the location of the Bifrost sword, but when no one answers, she orders Scourge to fulfill his role as executioner and execute someone as punishment for disobedience. As Scourge raises his axe, another Asgardian steps forward to reveal the location of the sword. Meanwhile, Thor's spaceship comes out the other side of the wormhole and flies into Asgard. They detect that Asgardians are hiding in the mountain and that Hela is coming right for them. Valkyrie drops Thor at the palace before flying off to the mountain sanctuary. So, let's talk about Scourge the Executioner, shall we? We've already had a little matter about Carl Urban. Let's talk about his character. What can you tell us about Scourge the Executioner? Is he Loki's child? It's Loki's child, isn't it? No. Uh, Bloody hell. (laughs) Who's who's left? There's no one left, Rob. There's no characters left. This whole wild... We've gone from Thor's a silly goose to this wild goose chase. This this, this whole episode is wall-to-wall geese. <laughs> Scourge the Executioner is first introduced in 1964, quite very, 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 very early on. Um, he is um, the son of an unnamed storm giant and a Skornheim goddess, making him half-giant, half-immortal god. Mm. Um, he becomes a, a warrior, and he gains the name the Executioner after fighting a war against the storm giants with great vigor. Um, and he always wields, or often wields, um, this large enchanted double bladed battle axe which it looks mm-hmm. amazing um, and that has some different abilities it can actually cut rifts into um, other dimensions um, and it has control over fire and ice as well um, he also wears this uh, a lot of the time this massive enchanted impregnable horned helmet that completely covers his head and mm. just has like the you know the, when the, the the actual slits for the face are in complete darkness and oh, so you, I know the kind the yeah. artist will just draw the eyes and it looks really sinister oh, that a bit like amazing. you know at the end of game of thrones when the mountain wears that massive where he becomes they they try to pretend he's not the mountain because the mountain died and he wears a massive horned helmet I didn't really get cool. that far in the TV series. It was that fight where oh. he where he squeezes that bloke's brains out, and I was like, I've kind of done with this show. Oh, love it. Um, so Scourge <laughs> has always had feelings for the evil enchantress Amora uh, and is regularly aiding her, her evil schemes to kind of... D- destroy Thor, gain control of Asgard, all of that. But she's always like manipulating him 
using her womanly wiles and she dangles the threat. He's a, you know what? I'm going to say it. Go Scourge the executioner more like simp the executioner. Ooh, um, he never he's... gets nothing from her and she dangles the 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 the, the whiff of possibility under his nose but and I'm he does a nice guy. whatever she wants. I'm a nice guy. <laughs> I'm a nice guy. I kill these people for you. Um <laughs> and so, yeah, he, he's worked for Loki and for the Enchantress and all that. Yeah. In his first appearance, the Executioner and the Enchantress go uh, to battle Thor at the behest of Loki. And um, the Enchantress exiles Jane Foster to another dimension to try and get Thor to surrender his hammer to him in exchange mm. for like, Jane's life. They're then, uh, uh, Executioner and the Enchantress are then exiled to Earth by Odin. Where they um, they join Baron Zemo and become part of the original Masters of Evil, and that, that's the very first super team in Marvel, and the, uh, super villain team, and fight the Avengers. Um, he becomes like a perennial Thor villain, basically doing the, mm. the bidding of the Enchantress or maybe Loki, kind of hopelessly in love with Amora, and <laughs> sometimes he does stuff on his own. Like he he wants to defeat Thor in battle and the Avengers in battle to prove his. Might in combat, that kind of stuff. Might in combat. Outside the mountain sanctuary, Hela tears down the doors but finds the place completely empty. All of the Asgardians have escaped down the side of the mountain. Thor summons Hela back to the throne room and the two fight. As this, ha- as this is happening, Heimdall leads the Asgardians to the Bifrost Bridge, which is being guarded by Fenris. As the giant beast charges at the Asgardians, Valkyrie launches a volley of shots against the creature. As the Asgardians retreat, they are trapped by Scourge, leading an army of the undead, who demands the Bifrost sword from Heimdall. As the fight between Hela and Thor heats up, Hela slashes out Thor's right eye, half-blinding the god. Vicious eye-slashing. They oh, That was quite vicious, wasn't it? How is that PG? Uh, they didn't even hide the face. I know. It, like, you just saw a gaping hole where his eye used to be, and I was like, ooh. Did this ever happen in the comics, though? Well, Thor's lost his eye more than once, mm. but not at the hands of Hela. Um, back in 2004, in the Avengers Disassembled kind of uh, series, yeah. um, when the Avengers are falling apart, Thor is looking to stop um, the total Ragnarok of his people in an attempt to gain more power. He's, he's, so he's, he's lost Mjolnir. He already doesn't have Mjolnir, and he's trying to get more power so that he can prevent Ragnarok. He needs information, he needs wisdom, and so he finds the wisdom well, and he tears out his eyes, plunges them into the water. This is the kind of following the Norse mythology of Odin yeah. sacrificing one of his eyes for wisdom. Um and in the aftermath of this sacrifice, Thor learns how to use the Odin Force, which is his birthright from from his father, from Odin himself, and he mm. becomes incredibly powerful. Then he dies, stays dead for many years, comes back to life with both eyes intact. Um, but then more recently, Jason Aaron's highly acclaimed run on Thor, um, Thor finds himself losing a battle against Malekith, the Dark Elf, um, and he doesn't know it's the War of the Realms this is once called which is all the ten realms go to war and it happens all over Earth with um, uh, Malekith the Dark Elf leading sort of the dark aspects of these mythological worlds to conquer like Russia, Australia Europe, 
it's mm. um it's full on we'll get to it one day oh look forward to that thor um to, to to work out how to beat his enemy he sacrifices his left eye for the knowledge um of of how to get more power in, and and defeat him and um ends up nailing himself to the world tree um and burning uh, which is in the centre of the sun. So I forgot that bit. The world tree is now in the centre of the sun. Um, Thor nails himself to it and burns for many days to gain more power and more wisdom and stuff. Wow. Okay. So twice he's lost his eyes. That's a lot of times to lose your eye. It is, especially since the first time he lost both. So he's <laughs> lost three eyes. He's, he's had too many chances. Yeah. Too many chances. As Valkyrie tries to stop Fenris using a Gatling gun with little luck, Banner realises he needs to step up and dives out of out the ship onto the Bifrost Bridge. But instead of turning into the Hulk, he knocks himself out. That splat is so funny. That was... I burst out laughing at that yeah. bit. It's, it's one of those comic bits where you can kind of see it coming. Because it's, like, it's <laughs> yeah. the most perfect moment to do something like that. It's brilliant. As Fenris continues charging against the Asgardians, he's suddenly stopped in his place and yanked backwards by the tail. Banner has become the Hulk. As the two fight, the Asgardians battle against the undead army. Just as things look like they are turning for the worst, Korg and Loki fly in with a large ship and order the Asgardians to board right away as the Sakarians hold off the undead army. So Fenris, Fenris actually comes from the North mythology... Norse mythology, sorry, got got the uh, things. Yeah. And so, Fenris obviously is in the Marvel comics. What happens? Fenris is a child of Loki. Oh, <laughs> the love of God! No, no, that Wolfie oh, boy, sneaky bastard! <laughs> oh, you expect you did this because you I know did. I, I planned it right from the start. He's the wolf. Oh, he's never going to guess it's the wolf because no. that would be weird. <laughs> so Fenris is is a child. Uh, Fenris is the is the the child of Loki and the giant Agaboda, so it is also the sister of Hela. Uh, well, sibling of Hela, sorry, mm. because Fenris's gender has been different in different stories. Yeah, um, and Fenris is a shapeshifter. Uh, it's a huge wolf, fifteen feet tall, usually when it wants to be. Yeah, um, but with human-like intelligence, which we don't see in this movie, um, mm. vast strength, the ability to change shape, it can become like a normal humanoid, you know, immortal god, or it can be a normal-sized wolf, or it can be this giant thing. Um, Fenris, in in the myth, is said to have chased Idun through the gardens of Asgard, trying to gobble up the apples of. Uh, Iden's apples, which are kind of apples of life, those are the apples that the Asgardians have to eat regularly to stay immortal, to stay mm. alive. And Fenris chasing Iden through the gardens to eat the apples and then becoming humanoid to try and trick her is said to be, in at least the Marvel Universe, the inspiration for Little Red Riding Hood uh, and the Big Bad uh, Wolf. Yes. And a lot in the Marvel Universe, a lot of our fears of wolves and the wolf kind of featuring in a lot of our stories, Native American and stuff like that, is all meant to be derived from Fenris. Um, such a powerful, big figure that uh, humans are just naturally terrified of wolves because of well, Fenris. they are terrifying. They are. I would not like to face one, thank you. No. Um, Fenris, as it was growing to maturity, they decided they had to um, tether and chain the creature up, and they had to keep 
they had to work really hard to build one of these mythological uh, tethers that could um, that could actually tie him up. Um, and it's also it's it's gossamer thin. It, it's a silk-like substance um, called the gleipnir. Gleip um, mm. And it's made from stuff like the cries of a woman, the <laughs> spittle of a sparrow, the you know all this kind of stuff, the thoughts of a child. It's it's like nonsense stuff, but it all becomes this very powerful thing. Um, he chewed through the hand of Tyre, the god of war, who was trying to bridle him with this uh, with this noose, with this leash, um, and mm. then the gods uh, bound Fenris to a rock where he's been kept for for eons because it's prophesied that when Ragnarok begins Fenris will devour Odin Um, and so uh, that's Fenris speaking of that I just had a quick google Uh, I was looking at pictures of wolves yeah there's there's a prettiness about you want to rub their bellies don't you Uh, I no. No. I don't know. I, they, 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 they've got that thing like like most mammals do, where they look nice with their fur, but there's that look in their eyes. That they eat your cats. You. They eat your cats in a heartbeat. They, they would. They would just tear yeah. them up. But yeah. there's a, there's a look in a wolf's eyes where it's just like, don't even think about it. <laughs> yeah, don't. It's like a bouncer. Anyway, back to the story. <clears throat> Meanwhile, Thor is still under the grip of Hela and has a vision of Odin telling him that Asgard is. The own is only a place that and can be rebuilt. Thor uses his last ounce of strength to unleash a powerful thunderbolt before launching himself onto the Bifrost Bridge. With little effort, Thor smashes his way through wave after wave of undead soldiers, with Valkyrie joining the fray and Hulk fending off Ferris. As this is the first time we've seen Thor fight like mass armies like this. We see a lot more mm. of it in Infinity War. But yeah. this was I think we saw it we saw him, you know, fight some things maybe in the first the and second Thor movie. At the beginning I can't of this remember. film there was there was there was a little bit of fighting like that. Um in the first Thor movie, you're saying? In the in the beginning of this film. And this is there? Okay. Yeah, when he's fighting Surtur's minions and the dragon. Yeah, but is it is it scores and scores and waves uh, of people? Yeah, true, true. Like true. this, this was like this to me. This was like I don't think I've ever seen anything like this in a superhero or an action movie before. And I was like, yeah, this is like if you put a god up against these these things. That's how he would just tear through them. And it it, it it's in, you know you kind of get a when you sometimes when they talk about Thor being worshipped by warriors and soldiers and mm. you know when he would join wars and battles and things and amaze people and celebrate for days you go this is kind of the closest you get to kind of seeing that you don't get yeah. the depictions in the comic books because they're stationary don't look as cool this looked really awesome and of course we see loads more of it in infinity war yeah i i i did like this battle so with little yeah. effort Thor smashes his way through wave after wave of undead soldiers with Valkyrie joining the fray and Hulk fending off Fenris. As Scourge sees, uh, sees he's clearly on the wrong side, he throws away his executioner's axe and disguises himself as an Asgardian refugee. As the undead army lay slain, Thor, Valkyrie and Loki stand shoulder to shoulder as they face up against Hela. Thor remembers what his father told him. Asgard is a place, not a... Asgard is a... Sorry. Asgard is a people, not a place. So I wrote it down the other way around. Oh, right. Yeah, and, and you I was changed like, the end of the movie, Will. <laughs> I changed the end of the movie. No, the uh, all stay and everyone dies. It's horrible. Di- yes, it's just just 
empty streets, but really nice-looking buildings. It was never about stopping Ragnarok. It was about causing Ragnarok. Thor orders Loki to retrieve Surtur's crown from the vault as he faces up against Hela again. Thor cannot defeat Hela, but he fights a long enough, a long enough uh, time for the Asgardians to escape. However, as the refugee ship attempts to lift off, Hela summons a large spire that holds the vessel in place, allowing more undead soldiers to climb and board. Just at the last minute, Scourge enters wielding two assault rifles and protects the Asgardians and redeeming himself. However, as he goes after Hela, the goddess of death kills Scourge instantly with a blade to the heart. This is a very heroic end for Scourge. Anything like this happened in the original stories? Yeah, he has a final redemption um, that they've they've really used lots of elements of here. Mm. In fact, Scourge wielding two assault rifles instead of his axe comes from this 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 redemption story. Oh, nice. um, so um, Amora like sets her sights on seducing Heimdall as her next potential lover, and Scourge um, sets off to ease the wounds of his heart in battle. Um, mm. And he petitions to join Thor, Baldar, and some of the dead as they go on a rescue mission into Hell. Um, so a group of of, of mortal soul living, yeah, mortal souls of living mortals have been trapped in Hell by Malekith the Accursed, the Dark Elf. And Hela refuses to permit them to return to life, to return back to Midgard. Um, and Thor, despite this being a guy he's fought many, many, many times and a, a, a bad dude, he knows Scourge is an accomplished warrior, so he, he lets Scourge come with them and fight with them. Nice. But as soon as they arrive in Hell, Scourge sees the appearance of Emora, the Enchantress, who manipulates him, um, or tries to. Um, and it, this is revealed to be an illusion cast by Hela to get Scourge to turn against Thor and Baldar. And she promises Scourge a place of honour beside her um, at the Battle of Ragnarok. So he discovers this is an illusion. He's absolutely enraged at being manipulated. Scourge destroys uh, Nagelfar, the ship of the dead, with his axe. Nagelfar has to be there at Ragnarok just has to so he's delayed the end of days until Hela can rebuild her ship as they as the the group of of, of Asgardians kind of like flee out of hell with all the 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 souls um of the of the living mortals there's a bridge called oh my god give me give me a second uh Jalabru, 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 Jalabru. So the bridge of Jalabru, um, Thor is, is going to... to the, is it next to the bridge of Ironbrew? Yes, correct. The bridge of Jalabru, Thor swears to hold the bridge as long as he can so the souls of mortals can reach freedom. Scourge, seeking redemption for a wasted life, knocks Thor unconscious and tells Baldar, I'll take the Thunder God's place and I'll hold the Jalbrew Bridge as long as I can. Um, and Scourge requests, he says, when I'm gone and it's all over, promise me that you and Thor will drink to my memory. Um, mm. And Scourge defends uh, Gajalbro 
with uh, M16 rifles um, that the Midgard souls have brought through with on the expedition. Mm. He does not let a single demon pass until all the mortal souls escape and is eventually overrun and he is ripped apart and killed by Hela's forces. But in death, Hela is impressed with Scourge and pays him tribute, saying he stood alone at Gal- uh, at Gajalbrew. Um and eventually recognises that Scourge's honour and courage means he belongs somewhere better than hell. And yeah. so he's, his soul is allowed to depart and, uh, and ends up in the realm of Valhalla, as Thor and Baldar are said to have had many drinks in Scourge's honour. Oh, lovely. We came up to the end of the film now. As Hela gloats that Thor can't defeat her, the Thunder God smiles back at her and says, I know, but he can. Just as the giant fiery form of Surtur bursts out from the palace of Asgard and begins stro- destroying Thor's home. As Thor, Valkyrie, Banner, Loki and the rest of the Asgardians escape on their ship, Hela faces up against Surtur, but is no match for the fire giant who kills Hela and annihilates Asgard in the blink of an eye. As the Asgardians watch in sorrow as their home is destroyed, Heimdall reminds everyone that Asgard is not a place. It's a people. Thor, now the rightful king of Asgard, <coughs> reconciles with Loki and decides to take his people to Earth. Has Asgard ever been destroyed in the comics, by the way? Yeah, I mean, well, it's sort of... Mm. Yes. So as we kind of discussed, Ragnarok in Marvel is an eternal cycle of death, destruction and rebirth. So our Asgard that we start reading about in the 60s um, is the latest iteration of this cycle mm-hmm. but presumably since the dawn of time it's been happening over and over and over again um, but Thor eventually ends the Ragnarok cycle he sacrifices himself to the, the he sacrifices himself and also I think he destroys um, these these beings that are apparently above the Norse gods those who sit above in shadow um, and he burns the world tree Yggdrasil burns mm. it um, and this like ends the Ragnarok cycle um, and uh, and there can be no more Ragnaroks in the Marvel Universe um, Asgard is gone the Asgardians sleep in human form unaware of their their true identities and their immortality and Thor kind of his sacrifice himself and he goes to this void and he's there for years and years then eventually he comes back and he uses Mjolnir to um, help bring the Asgardians kind of waken them all up from their mortal lives and he builds he rebuilds Asgard as a physical city in Oklahoma in the in the desert mm. yes I remember you saying about that yeah and uh, yeah. it's not another realm anymore um, so this is the beginning of what I would say this this um, sentiment as God is a people, not a place. So as God is kind of essentially considered a foreign embassy with diplomatic, you know, powers granted to it by America. Mm. Um, that didn't last long. Norman Osborn replaced Nick Fury as the head of Shield and the head of America's entire defense network. Oh yes, and he and Norman Osborn is insane so he loses control of himself and declares war on Asgard and attacks with the military and his own dark avengers and eventually destroys Asgard in this war um, the city that is mm. the Asgardians then rebuild their home into something called Asgardia 
um, as it is now ruled not by the All Father because uh, Odin's sulking. Um, <laughs> Odin closes off the extra dimensional realm that is Asgard. He shuts it down. Asgardians can't come in and out of it. It's just him and the dead body of his brother. Um, and that's it. It's an empty, dead, cold, desolate realm. And so all the Asgardians live in Asgardian under the direction of the All Mother, which is the triumvirate of uh, Gaia, the, uh, the the goddess of the earth, um, uh, Freyja, who is the queen and wife of Odin, and uh, Idun, the maiden who carries the um, eternal apples that give everyone their immortality. Um, so this is not another dimensional realm. This is the city of Asgard on Earth. But they actually move it, and they, now it becomes a planetoid that is mm. hovering near the moon. Oh, um, nice, nice. Asgardia itself is then destroyed, and the Asgardians relocate themselves to living in the Bronx. Um, so wow, yeah, it's wild. They have, they have a lot of brown, you know, apartment buildings and stuff yeah. during the, the realm of the War of the Realms. So that's I think that's part of the sentiment of Asgard is a people, not a place. Oh no, absolutely. Also, when you said that God, I, I heard it as Frasia. I thought they were the god of uh, Seattle, <laughs> the god of yeah. tossed salad and scrambled eggs. Yeah, oh, there's there's a thing that was sent around. I, I showed you a popular, a fairly popular meme I like to share, which is. What if Frasier joined the Fantastic Four and he's jumping out like an action with them going, watch out, evil, I'm listening. <laughs> it kills me every time. <laughs> anyway, meanwhile, Thor and Loki discuss the, in- the issues with uh, bringing the God of Mischief back to Earth just as a huge, ominous ship intercepts their vessel. Back on Sakaar, the overthrown Grandmaster is confronted by his former subjects. And as we bring this movie to a close, it's worth remembering that this is setting up Infinity War. There we have it. We have put to bed Thor Ragnarok as we career towards Infinity War and Endgame, a major stepping stone on that path, on that journey. I'll turn things over to Will Preston now because we all want to know, Will, your thoughts and assessments of this movie. I think it's, I think I've made myself pretty clear. It's a breath of fresh air from Thor: Dark World. It felt like a movie, a, t- uh, a decision for the movie that needed to happen. We needed something a bit different from what happened before because the Thor films up to this point, uh, you know, not up to scratch. And this was great. It does sacrifice a serious Thor in favour of some really decent laughs. There's some really decent laughs. Kate Blanchett, great villain, very underused. Uh, sadly the world of Sakaar very bright there's a lot of fun that blends in future and old world together in a decent way and is a great place to explore for this film it really lends itself to the light-hearted nature of the entire piece and you can tell Taika Waititi wanted to make this as much as his style as he could he wanted to make it a Waititi film more than a Marvel film and in some ways it really uh, complements this the destruction of Asgard, I always found a very shocking twist at the end as someone who doesn't read the Marvel comics. And seeing that, it was quite a breathtaking moment. And also, my I just love seeing Hulk in this again. Seeing Hulk fight Thor, seeing the, 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 the squabbling between the two was just brilliant. Thank you for that, Will. Reading this for this episode, um, there's tons and tons and tons of this uh, featuring the Planet Hulk um, storyline, which I highly recommend going to and checking out. 
Um, I think the a lot of the Ragnarok stuff, the final Ragnarok stuff, takes place in Avengers Disassembled Thor by Michael Avon Oming. Check that out. Um, the new sort of glory age and return of Thor, um, you can check out in Thor by J. Michael Straczynski, Volume 1. Straczynski is, is, is a, uh, a word spelt S-T-R-A. C Z Y N S K I. Um, I may be mispronouncing it, but that's the word you're looking yeah. for when you're looking for Thor by J. Michael Straczynski. He's the guy behind Babylon 5, really good writer. Um, and also uh, check out Thor God of Thunder Volume 1 by Jason Aaron, as the producers talked about how that was an influence um, for certain scenes and parts and personalities and stuff in this, uh, in this uh, movie. Our next episode, folks. It's going to be Christmas time as a special Christmas present. Our next full-length episode is going to be bringing you one of our Patreon bonus episodes. We've talked about quite a lot of Planet Hulk and World War Hulk today, so why not? We're going to take it from behind the paywall, and we're going to tuck it tuck it into your Christmas stocking. One of our very best episodes. Everyone on Patreon says it was the best bonus episode of 2022. Join us for World War Hulk after the tragedy of Planet Hulk, the angriest and most powerful version of the Hulk, Crash arrives on Earth with his armies looking for revenge against Iron Man, Doctor Strange, Charles Xavier, Black Bolt, Namor, the people, the heroes that betrayed him. It's Hulk and his army against the Avengers, the X-Men, and all the rest. So much more. It's a packed one, isn't it, Will? It's a really oh, awesome episode. It's very good. That's going to be our next full episode release. And then after that... As the December comes to its very, very end, you can join me and Will as we have a, a little bit of a fun romp through the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. Marvel vs. Marvel was researched, written and performed by Rob Holden and Will Preston. The show is produced by Will Preston and our theme song was composed and performed by Dan Walsh. Head to patreon.com slash marvel vs. marvel for awesome bonus content.